It's that time of year. The time that uh, we all get on an airplane, go home and uh, sit around with our family and probably put on about 30 pounds. <laughs> it's the holiday season. Uh, and I, I love it, man. I'm a big fan of it. I uh, love Christmas, uh, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate. Uh, I just like the, the reason to hang out with friends, the reason to hang out with family, the reason to just sort of get together, trade stories, uh, and eat. You know me, I love to eat. I love food. Um, and uh, I hope you guys are surviving it so far. I know what a fucking stressful situation it can be for a lot of people. Like, uh, you know, you got to buy gifts for folks. Maybe you got like that dad that, you know, you don't know what to buy for, or that mom that's always, you know, always hates whatever gift you buy for. Luckily, I'm pretty good. I've got a, a good family, uh, you know, and for us, it's it's a weird year for us because both Gina and I are out here in Los Angeles. As you know, if you've been listening to the show, we did the big move. We moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, and uh, we did that, when did we arrive? September? First of September. And so it just seems like we just got here. That's what it is. It seems like we just got here, and now we got to get on an airplane and fly back east uh, again. Um, and one of the things that we didn't anticipate uh, was how fucking expensive it is if you don't book your tickets way in advance. Because uh, everybody's traveling on Christmas Day. Like, it never occurred to me. Uh, you know, when you're watching Home Alone and the mom is freaking the fuck out in the airport, it's that kind of craziness. Um, and <clears throat> Los Angeles essentially shuts down. So they shut down mid mid December because most of the people here, at least in our industry, most of the people here uh, aren't from here. So everybody leaves and they leave through January. And according to the agents and management, most people don't give a fuck until after Sundance, uh, which is going to be an interesting thing. It's like, okay, so what do I do? What do I do in this downtime? Do I work on some stuff? Do I create some new content? Maybe. Um, but the other thing that's strange is that no one's here. And so here's what happened with me and Gina. We did the pricing for tickets for Christmas and it was like $800 a ticket. And we both like, no, can't we, we're not going to do that. We already spent an ass load of money to get across country. And so we went last week, we actually went home last week. It was radically cheaper. It was like $240 a ticket, you know, figure that out. Um, and we spent the time with our family. We did that early sort of Christmas thing. Uh, and it was good. Uh, we actually got snow, which was great. We were back in Boston for a short period of time, and it snowed one day, and I got to go out in the snow. I love that shit. It's like one of the few uh, natural events that still shut down what we do as humans. You know what I mean? It's like that, earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes, right? Uh, because it's such a great, it's a, it's a great moment for us to just remember that all the bullshit that's swirling around our lives, all that fucking stress doesn't make a difference and I love it I love putting on a heavy coat a scarf and a hat maybe pants pants are optional <laughs> and going out into it and it's such a dampening quieting thing when's the last time you stood in the middle of a snowstorm and the kind of snowstorm that has those big snowflakes where you can actually hear the snowflakes hitting the ground right and everything's super quiet Maybe off in the distance you hear like a half-drunk guy pushing a snowplow, right? But that's it. 
fucking love it. It's one of my favorite things. I'm one of those guys that actually love the snow. I didn't mind shoveling. I'm not one of those people that are like, I moved to California because it was so gross. Now, fuck you. The snow is really great. Season changes are really great. Especially if you're a storyteller. Especially if you give a shit about time. <laughs> because the one thing I keep hearing about time out here is that without the season changes, uh, time flies even faster. Which, you know, being someone that's like 41, mm, that doesn't sound too exciting to me. You know what I mean? But anyway, I hope you guys are going to have a good holiday. I know it could be a hard season for many, like I said. Um, but surround yourself with people that you want to be with. And if you have a great family structure, celebrate that. Go home, visit your parents, go do that stuff. Um, but if you don't, then find some friends that also don't. And get together and make it into something interesting. And you don't have to celebrate... I'm not religious, so it's not about, you know, Jesus or any of that shit. For me, these holidays have been distilled down to really great experiences with friends and family, right? And you go do that. Go have an experience because in that experience, be it good, be it good or stressful, uh, you'll find some great material to write about, right? I mean, you'll find some good stories. Maybe you'll be inspired by a horrible dinner conversation that happens and your mother throws a knife at your brother. <laughs> like maybe there's something cool there to tell a story about. Um, and worse comes to worse, just do what most people do. Go sit and watch TV. You know what I mean? How many great holiday movies are out there? And why the fuck don't I make Christmas movies, right? Because they never fucking die. You ever look at that? You ever look at how long a Christmas movie's on television? Like a Christmas story? Jesus Christ. I, I, at one point, it was like, every, it was the only thing on one channel for like three weeks. The residuals on that alone must still pay all those actors that were involved with that, that movie, right? What are the classics that you like? Like maybe you're a gentle soul. <laughs> maybe you're the Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer animated show kind of person, right? Uh, me being who I am, I watch that stuff and I start to think of other creepy uh, animated claymation doll animation stuff. Then I go back to the old Tool videos. Remember the Tool videos from the 90s? Sober. All those really creepy animated pieces. And if you do the research, you can actually go to the source of it all. You can go to the dudes that were making that stuff that inspired the Tool video. And those were the Brothers Quay. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of them. Brothers Quay. They're hard to find. I don't know if they're on a streaming service now for all you millennials out there that don't own discs. But I think you can still get them on DVD or Blu-ray. And the Brothers Quay, don't quote me on this. Maybe they're French, maybe they're German. Uh, they're a European duo that made these really super creepy animated pieces with dolls and like baby crocodile skulls and stuff like that. It was really cool. Um, and that was the stuff that actually inspired the Tool video. And that was the stuff that is inspired, you know, like if you were in that genre, like Static X had did a bunch of videos. Static X, what a throwback. <laughs> but um, yeah, so when I'm sitting around and I'm watching Frosty the Snowman, I'm thinking about the Brothers Quay. What a weirdo, right? Um, so like I said, maybe you're into that shit. Maybe you're Miracle on 34th Street and ah, the bell rang, you know, all that crap. Or... Uh, I always hated White Christmas. Oof. I hate musical shit. So 
uh, or you're like me and you were raised by violent movies, right? And uh, Christmas movies were gremlins. Ah, I hear you all sort of cheering on that one at home. Gremlins, right? What a badass Christmas movie that was. Like, and I, I don't know if I've talked about it on the show, but I love the theme. Being older, and I love the theme of Gremlins. I love the idea that is a culture that is so obsessed with these cute little fucking purse dogs <laughs> that you don't take into consideration the consequences. Like when the dad goes to buy the mugwai and he's in the store in Chinatown, he's like, here are the fucking rules. All you have to do is follow these fucking rules. That's all you got to do. And the dad comes home and half-heartedly sort of tells his son, like, you know, don't feed it up to midnight. And, you know, don't get any water and all that kind of shit. And what does the douchebag kid do? He does all this cutesy stuff and they're playing with it. And the fucking the thing eats and it becomes this horrible fucking uh, outbreak, basically. This horrible creature that takes over an entire town. Sound familiar? Hmm. Like everybody that owns these fucking pets these days. Anyway, I love, I love, I love that movie. Uh, but maybe you're more into some gunplay. Maybe a little bit of alcoholism, right? So you go and look, watch my favorite Christmas movie, which is Lethal Weapon, right? The first Lethal Weapon. I love that movie. The uh, crazy fight that happens in the Christmas tree shop. Love that shit. Uh, and who doesn't love a movie with uh, a coked up crazy girl that tosses herself half naked off a fucking balcony, right? <laughs> 2019, Mike, watch yourself. Yes, but that was one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite Christmas movies. And of course, everybody loves Die Hard. And I love Die Hard. I was raised on Die Hard. My idol was John McClane growing up as a kid. Talk about a good idol, right? Um, but they hit this point within the past, I don't know, five years or so, that everybody is jacking off to Die Hard when it comes to Christmas time. It's like, I want Die Hard Christmas cards, and I want diehard stuff it's like i get it i get it it's cool and it makes sense because we're all that age now you know what i mean we're in our 30s and 40s and we're like this is a good tradition for our children mm. you're right sure put on diehard and make fists with your toes it sounds like a good idea for christmas but i i do i love that shit and you know what's so weird about all that crap uh turns out that i uh, you know watching violent movies as a kid i turned out to be a fucking serial killer right mm-hmm that worked i guess that was uh I guess that was true but anyway i hope you enjoy your holiday season um and because it is the season of giving because it is the season of gifts i am giving you a supersized episode for christmas because there's a lot of you out there who hate your fucking family and what you're gonna do is toss on those headphones and you're gonna hide in the corner and you're gonna listen to me blab at you and that's a great way to spend your fucking holiday. <laughs> uh, all right. So for this episode, we're going back into writing. Okay. We're going to dig back into the art of writing. We're going to dig back into creating stories. We're going to dig back into how in the world do I put something on the page that is worth filming, that is worth publishing, that is worth putting out. And... I haven't done this yet on the show, and I talk about it a lot. I was a kid that was raised on comic books. I love comic books, and I think I've told this story before. I think it was on the episode with my mom. Go back and check that one out. It's a good one. 
Um, but as a kid, I fucking hated reading. I was a bad student and I hated reading and whatever. I, it wasn't that time period where they diagnosed you with shit. It's just that I didn't like it. And my mom, in her wisdom, her infinite wisdom, actually went out and at the time grabbed one at the drugstore. Because that's where they used to be on a little rack in the drugstore. Grabbed me a handful of comic books. Brought them home and tossed them at me and said, check these out. Right? And I forget what she got. The initial book she got me, I think, was an Amazing Spider-Man, which was drawn by Eric Larson at the time. And then she also got me an X-Men book. And there was one other that I can't remember. I think it was a trashy book. That's why. But I got the books, and it changed my life. I opened them up, and there were pictures inside. <laughs> and it was a book told with pictures. It was a book told with panels. Um... And uh, to this day, I still read comic books the same way I did as a kid. I'll actually get that fresh floppy, as they call it, that, that, that issue. And I'll flip through it before I read it. I'll actually flip through the whole issue, look at the pictures, look at the story with that quickly, and then forget everything I saw and then go through and read it again. I love comic books. I usually read a single issue of a comic about three times. I'll go through it. And of course... In that sort of examination, I used to spend time like trying to draw. I wanted to become a comic book artist, so I traced panels. I remember being a kid in uh, middle school, and I would sell people uh, images that I made off of trace panels. Um, and I wanted to get to art school. That was my goal. I was going to go to an art school um, and become a comic book illustrator. Uh, but my grades sucked. My grades were terrible through high school, uh, and I got rejected. I got rejected from a pretty big... Uh, art school and I was just like fuck you fuck you to the world fuck you to that school uh, and walked away from doing comic book stuff but strangely that all came back later when I decided to do film and I got into directing and I got into storyboarding and I got into all that stuff so I still love comic books um, and you've heard me be passionate if you follow me on Instagram you've seen me talk about Marvel movies and uh, Star Wars movies and all that stuff um, and a majority of the reason why I go see those movies is because of the concept art, right? Because basically those giant tentpole movies right now are a series of scenes that are just talking heads intercut with amazing wide shot concept art stuff. You know, most of the talent that are in the new movies is the concept artist. Whenever you look at those big fucking shots, those are the guys designing that shit. Um, but I love that, man. I love, 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 love world building with art with panels um, and so long story short I haven't done an episode with a comic book person I haven't done an episode with someone from the comic book industry and today is our first and I'm very excited to have our guest on today he's a writer he's written for DC he's written I think he's written for Marvel he's written yes for sure he's written for DC he's written for Marvel he's written for Image um, he's done titles like uh, he rebooted and did all of the Power Rangers titles. And I know that there's a bunch of fucking Power Rangers comic book fans out there. Huge ones. He did some pretty interesting stuff with that series. He also wrote for Batman. He wrote a bunch of Batman books. Um, and if you guys are DC fans, which I know a lot of you are, uh, when they did the New 52 uh, reboot, he did the Nightwing series, right? And more importantly to me... Um, he did a really cool new book that I was really pumped about um, called Hadrian's Wall. And that was put out on Image. 
Now, for those of you who aren't, uh, well, I mean, everybody's into comic books right now, right? Because you guys love fucking, you know, modern cinema, as they say, quote unquote. You love movies that are out right now, right? So a lot of you are probably big Marvel fans, you know, easy to swallow. They're the Flintstone vitamins of fucking comic books. There's a reason why you guys like that shit so much. They work real hard to make sure that everybody likes that stuff. I grew up on those, right? Spider-Man, X-Men, all that kind of stuff. Or maybe you're a DC person. The infinite, the never-ending battle between Marvel and DC. Characters that are slightly similar. But the only shit I ever really gave a fuck about on DC was Batman, right? He seemed to be the only character that had any gravity. Um, but there was also Image. I don't know if you guys know about Image, and we'll talk about that on the show. Image became an alternative publishing source in the 90s, created by all the best illustrators. All the best illustrators of Marvel jumped ship right when they were at their peak and created a whole other publishing company. And this publishing company is still amazing. A lot of the great books that I read right now, because I'm kind of fed up with a lot of the shit that's going on internally with Marvel and all that crap. So... I oftentimes find myself digging deep into Images catalog, right? I love this company. They do amazing books. They've like Walking Dead. Hello, Walking Dead, right? That's all on Image. Uh, Low, L-O-W, go check that book out. That book is fucking amazing. I love that book. Uh, Tokyo Ghost, um, Saga. Everybody loves Saga. Why the Last Man? Holy shit. If you haven't read Why the Last Man, it is the only comic book that legitimately made me cry when I finished reading that book. I cried reading a comic book. That's how good these stories are. And that's why I'm very excited to have today's guest on, right? His name is Kyle Higgins. And if you've listened to any of the uh, comic book podcasts, he's been on those. He was on Kevin Smith's podcast. And like I said, he has done an amazing run as a writer at all these different comic book companies. And the thing that's fascinating about him is that he actually started as a director. He went to school for directing. And I saw his student film, which is amazing. He did an amazing uh, superhero uh, student film that actually got him his career in comics, strange enough. And he'll talk about that on the show. Um, And so Kyle has gone through the process of making movies getting a career, getting a secondary career in comics as a writer. And this is a career that people strive for. This is like the end goal for a lot of people is to be a writer in comics. Um, But Kyle always had that bug. He always wanted to go back and do movies and be a director. And it sounds a lot like what I went through where I got a career as a photographer and I just wanted to be a fucking director. And why do I distract myself with these things instead of directing, right? What is the source of it? Is it insecurity? Is it fear? I don't know. Maybe we'll talk to Kyle about that on the show. This is a good episode for you. If you're into writing, we, we get deep into sort of the sources of good writing, the source of good material to bring to your stories. And writing for comic books is fascinating when you think about it, because how do you complete an arc in a comic book like Batman? You can't change Batman. He can't learn his fucking lesson. By the end of the episode, he can't suddenly be like, I get it. I'm a piece of shit. I shouldn't do this anymore. Because then they won't sell Batman books. So how do you write intriguing comic books when the heroes have to continue on and on and on? We talk about that a little bit about on the show as well. 
And the thing that's really interesting, when I was doing the research with him, and I'll tell you guys on the show how I found, I found him. And it was pretty interesting how I got there because it all has to do with one of his books. I found him uh, and I did a little research on him and it turns out that him and I have the same agent. How weird is that? We're both repped by Jeff over at UTA. How weird is that, right? So I reached out to him and we bonded on that and we talk a lot on the show about agents and management as well, right? Because he's been at this shit for a while. Like he came to, he came here to Hollywood at like 22, 23. And he's what, 35 now? So he's been pitching. He's got hundreds of pitches under his belt. So that we talk a lot about that on the show as well. Um, this is a great episode. And Kyle's no stranger to being on a podcast and he loves to get deep into stuff. He claims that he needs an editor, but I just let him go, man, because he's got so much great stuff to process. And the other thing that's really cool about this, like I said, he rebooted, um, basically rebooted the Power Rangers franchise to the point where not only did he write the comics for it, but he also directed a small film promotional material for it too. To the point where Power Rangers suddenly was big again and was purchased by a larger company. We talk about that a little bit on the show too and what that was like and what it's like to be someone that is creating new characters for a larger franchise, right? And then do you get paid for that? Like what goes on with that? So this is a great episode, guys. If you're a comic book nerd, you're gonna fucking love it because it goes into a lot of the details that we don't really know about in the industry, which is really cool. If you're someone that wants to write stories, if you're someone that's looking for a solid way to pour your heart out on the page, you're gonna love this fucking episode too. I'm telling you, I have delivered for Christmas. I have delivered for the holiday season. I present to you the supersized issue, the double-sized podcast with me and Kyle Higgins. So, you know the deal. Grab those noise-canceling headphones, Maybe sit by the fire. Hmm? We've got a little fireplace here, which is pretty awesome. Sit by the fire. Eat yourself up some hot cocoa. <laughs> what a fucking nerd. Eat yourself up something. Maybe spike yourself a little tea, you know, a little hot toddy, which I've been doing a lot lately. You can tell that I'm in my 40s. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. And when the nights are peaceful and serene 
So, hey, Kyle, thanks for being on the show, dude. Yeah, my uh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity and excuse to come to Glendale. <laughs> yeah, I love it when uh, guests actually get to come to my spot. You're mm-hmm. sitting on our couch. I was going to start up the fireplace, but I didn't get to it. Uh, you have a fireplace? Oh, man. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, this space is pretty great, dude. I got I to gotta be honest. Um, I've been in L.A. for like 15 years, um, and I've... I think I can count on one hand how many times I've come to Glendale. Is the Galleria over here? Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. So I have been. It's been an been adjustment for me because yeah. on the East Coast, around 13 years old is when I was like, I don't need to go to malls anymore. Sure, yeah. But out here in California, everything's in a fucking mall. Yeah, I like live. I li- I'm a five minute walk from the Grove <laughs> in like West Hollywood, Beverly Fairfax area. Yeah, and I always. Like on principle, I try to not go. <laughs> uh, but I have these like, there's this coffee shop that I work out of a lot. And there's like, it, it's actually like one of the coolest parts of the last couple years of my life is that this shop has all of these writers, like working writers in it. Hmm. And uh, I mean, we'll get into this, I'm sure. But like about a year and a half ago, um, I started going in there and I kind of avoided it for like the first two years that I lived in the place I'm in now. Mm-hmm. Cause every time I'd walk in, it was like, you know, it's the quintessential like laptop open screenplay out. And I, I would just like get bummed out cause it would either make me jealous going like, well, I can do that, you know, <laughs> but I'm not cause I'm in comics land or I would be going, well, it would bum me out for like one of two reasons. Either I went, well, uh, I bet it sucks and I should be doing that. Or the flip side, oh, I bet it's really good and I'm not doing that. <laughs> and then I kind of just like got over it and started going into this place. And I ended up meeting all these writers that are all like working feature writers and TV writers. And we've become like this little collective. And, uh, it like ended up really changing things for me in an interesting way. Hmm. Uh, and as a result though, like, so we all hang out and like the, there's one guy in particular that who I love, uh, his name's Harrison Query, He's a, a pretty badass feature writer. He, uh, wants, just wants to go see movies at the Grove. So like, <laughs> and I'm, and he's not a director and, and I am, and I'm constantly telling him like, don't the screens suck at the Grove. <laughs> like, do you know how much light bleed from the exit signs you're getting on the screen? Like right. it's, they're awful. Right. And he's like, bro, bro. He's like, no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> or a very specific type of nerd like us. Yeah. My dad, my dad tells me he, he was just out here a few weeks ago and uh, he still gives me shit about this from like back in the day. We went to see Spider-Man 2 in IMAX and obviously it's a 35 print that had been blown up for IMAX yeah. when that was like kind of the rage yeah. when they were starting to do that. And I remember we were. I turned to him like during the movie, and I'd already seen it. It was either during the movie or right after, and I was like, the grain on the faces are like, you know, the size of like fucking boulders. And to this day, he he'll like give me shit, and he'll be like, if I'm like too anal about something, he'll be like, you're looking at the grain. <laughs> yeah, it's true, man. I mean, for years as a director myself I, I mean for years i was watching shit i would go home and watch it on a tv vcr combo yeah like yeah, it's like it so the audience visually i always say this the audience visually you can excuse visual shit you can go it's fucking style the right. thing that you can't excuse is audio so like if you have bullshit yeah. bad audio then it sucks but for a general audience if it's 
as long as your characters are written well, as long as there's something that they can identify with, they don't give a fuck about the grain. Yeah, and yet the irony is that more and more people watching shit on their phones, <sighs> like you're like mixing for such narrow bandwidth now. Sure. Like and you- so much so much bad audio gets hidden um, because people kind of don't, they either uh, assume it's only going to be watched on a phone now or they don't care as much because that's how they watch stuff. Um, like I know, I know a number of kind of content creators who, um, you know, they, they primarily like, this is a whole weird thing to me. Like the whole YouTube of it all mm-hmm. is still a little bit foreign to me. Yeah. Um, and, but I know a lot of people who like take pride in what they're making, but then also turn around and are like, well, it's just going to, it's going to be on YouTube and it's going to be on a, on a phone. And so from both visual, like cutting corners, but also audio cutting corners, like, and everything gets mixed and super compressed and compressed, yeah. not, not in a, like, um, like an MP3 type of compression. I mean, compression in the dynamic range. So everything's right. like super, super punchy, you know, right. because it's, it's all going to be, it's got to hit like that mid range for most of it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Or you're just cupping your fucking hand over the back end of the phone, trying to get some audio. Out. <laughs> yeah. I, I dude. Yes, I agree, but that's their fault, honestly. And like, I'll say this controversially, it's the fault of the fucking filmmaker. I think that if you're releasing stuff to the audience, you have to be verbal about it and you have to come out and say, look, I made this, I literally went and I fucking color corrected 12KM. I went and color corrected that in a theater. Sure, I sat yeah. in a fucking theater, did that on the screen, did mm-hmm. this whole process. And sure, you can watch it on your phone and you can spoil it for yourself. Or if you're going to do so, put on some fucking dynamic headphones. Mm-hmm. For the love of God, put on right. some good headphones. Um, but, or just stream it. I'll make it very simple for you to put it on the television and be able to sit through that stuff. And if you have a good audio system... Use your audio system if you don't use headphones. Right. Well, yeah, and I, I was checking out a few of your pieces actually this morning because I, I emailed, for listeners, I emailed Mike before I came over and I was like... I should have sent them earlier. I was, I was like, can you shit? send me your, your shirt? So I saw I saw um, who's there and I saw the beginning of 12 Cam, but then I had to, I was telling him right before we started recording, I had to take a call from my accountant and I'll put it this way, I would have much rather been watching the short. (laughs) Um, But I was taken by the fact that both pieces, you know, are up through Vimeo. I love Vimeo. That's my preferred platform. And I got seduced by YouTube in the last couple years. Um, I got talked into putting some stuff. What was was the, what was the seduction? Cash? No, 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 no. Um, it was, uh, it was just basically the potential for click-through. Oh, right, right, right. And one of the pieces in particular, I directed this big Power Rangers short film. I saw it, yeah. Yeah, a few years ago. That was for Saban and, and tied to Boom Studios and the big book that I was writing. And part of the arrangement was that we were going to put it out through Jason David Frank's YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first time I had any real experience with YouTube. Everything mm-hmm. else going back to the film I made in college 10 years ago, I put out through Vimeo. I just, I prefer the clean aesthetic, the platform, Mm -hmm. just the, um, the focus on quality, the better compression ratios, like everything about it is, is better. But if you're looking for mainstream kind of click through potential, like 
the viewership numbers are just like not even comparable sure. to Vimeo and YouTube. Yeah. So we put it out through Jason's <clears throat> YouTube channel and like that was a whole process of like how you then seed it for ads and, and stuff like that. I'd never, you know, yeah. it's so foreign to me. And then when I decided to a week later, we, we tiered it so we would release publicly a short that I did called The Shadow Hours a week after that. Mm-hmm. And we partnered with IGN for the release on it. And so IGN has a huge YouTube, yeah. you know, fan following. So yeah, it kills me because the better version of the better quality version of the movie is on Vimeo, which is also publicly sure. available. Um, but the version that's like seeded through the website and everything is the IGN, yeah. <laughs> the IGN YouTube version. Yeah, no, we went through that years ago cause I started doing music videos. So I would mm-hmm. do stuff for like metal acts, big acts and shit. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where I learned a bit about like how things have rolled out and how to release things and how to tease things and when you do a teaser and where do you put it and everything else. Right. Um, and so we did some, you know, I think our biggest music video is for Meshuggah for Bleed. And I think that one's got like 12 million, 13 million, whatever the fuck it is, mm-hmm. uh, views. But it really doesn't do, like, even though it has 13 million views, it doesn't do shit for me. Right. At the end of the day, it still doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that was my argument. The, when I say I was seduced, yeah. that's, I really mean it because. In my heart of hearts, I knew like it doesn't matter, it and doesn't. and and the fact that we're even putting it out publicly, um, it, it really we did it to do it, but it was more for the one in a million shot that, um, you know maybe Cinephalian Beyond covers it. I know, I know those guys a little bit. It was like okay, well maybe they they maybe they cover it, yeah. and then it it's seen by someone we wouldn't have reached otherwise through my reps or like someone like really high end or or high tier. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so that was kind of the only reason other than that, like we'd been, you know, kind of sharing it around town, um, through, through my, my reps and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, which probably a good time to mention that was when you reached out to me, that was the, (laughs) one of the first things you said, cause like, I'm going to sound like a bit of an (laughs) asshole right now and, and I don't mean to, but, you know, I get like, I, just because of the comics career, I get a lot of messages through I Instagram and, and things like that. And, and a lot of podcasts kind of requests and, and things like that. And I don't do that many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mike reached out to me through Instagram. I was actually at a convention in Nova Scotia at the time <laughs> of all places. Um, but you were super complimentary of, of one of my books, Hadrian's Wall. And then you, you also mentioned, you're like, yeah, we have the same agent yeah. uh, at UTA. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, I mean. Let I'm, me give you some backstory. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay, so here's the funny thing. <clears throat> so I have, we're both rep by same guy at UTA. Right, Jeff Morley. Jeff, Who's I love great. Jeff. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, do I have stories about Jeff? <laughs> I've been with him for 10 years. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, fuck since yeah. he was a manager. He was a manager for Hot Second. Oh, no um, shit. Like 10 years ago, yeah. He's got such a dry sense of humor, and I fucking love it. And really great taste. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much Ask so. him about Harold Pinter plays sometime. Okay. If you want to lose two hours of your life. <laughs> I will. I'll ask him. <laughs> so <clears throat> when I moved out here, I moved out, and it's a longer conversation that we can get into, but I moved out here because uh, 12 cams picked up mm-hmm. and who's there is happening. So those two things required me to come out. And then I, when I was in Boston, I used to run a production company. I was more commercial based and I was doing all that. And that mm-hmm. was my life was that. And so your daily grind was like, I got to fucking make money in order to stay afloat. And that was the kind of thing. And yeah, so, I don't know what that's like or anything. You do. 
<laughs> so when I moved out here, it changed. Everything changed because I was focused more on directing and less on commercial stuff. Um, and so I talked to uh, my management. I'm rep by uh, Gotham. Yep. So Gotham roast me. Mm-hmm. So I talked to those guys, uh, Justin over there. And I'm like, what is my daily fucking routine now? This is weird to me. Like, this is a few months ago. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And he's like, look, <clears throat> you got to get in the room consistently with... Um, execs and the way to do that is always have something cool to bring into the room and you got to start looking for stuff to do Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. he's like read a lot of stuff and go through a lot of stuff and so i started a new regiment for me that's interesting where like i wake up first thing in the morning and i read for like an hour and a half Mm. and that's kind of what i do and do you write Uh, i i write out of necessity most of my stuff now is written by will simmons who's a screenplay writer yeah 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 this is really interesting to me okay so um, so I was going through and I was reading a bunch of shit and I was going back through comics cause I was a comic kid growing up. Um, I w- wanted to be an illustrator for years and mm-hmm. I just sort of turned and went into this, but mm-hmm. I've been, I'm like friends with Temple Smith. I know a bunch of oh, yeah, in the yeah. business. And so, <clears throat> so I go back in and I start reading and I came across your book, a friend of mine who is one of my comic buddies cause we all have comic buddies. Sure. And he was like, I got a fucking stack of books that you might want to read that are kind of self-contained. Yep. And so I had never heard of uh, Hadrian's Wall, so I, I immediately chewed through it, mm-hmm. like fucking quick. And I, it's one of those things where like you read a lot of stuff that you know, like you look at a book and you go, there's no fucking way I could ever do this because right. it takes place in like the 50s and there's tanks and there's all sorts of shit. <laughs> and you're, we're young directors, and right. so they're like, we want to have something small and contained. Mm-hmm. So I read it and I was like, this book is fucking killer. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. So I reached out to my guys and I was like, this is a really great book. Is it available is it, is it out there? Mm-hmm. And um, waiting for the response from my guys, I never can wait. I just did the research and I went through and I looked and found your stuff and I saw that you were rep by Jeff. And so yeah. I wrote Jeff immediately and I was like, dude, what the fuck? We're both rep by the same guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, like at least set up a meeting and we'll do something. And he was like, <laughs> he's like kind of passive, but he's like, yeah, no, it's great. He's great. And I was like, yeah, it'd be a good, it'd be a good movie. It'd be a cool thing to try to get. <laughs> and then he's like, well, he's a director. And he's going to direct it. And I was like, oh, all right, well, that's cool. We should still meet anyway. Yeah. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll make something happen. Yeah. And nothing really happened. So I just wrote to you directly. So I essentially wanted to do a Fucking version. Jeff. That's what it comes back to. <laughs> Fucking Jeff never emailed me. But I event- just like, kidding. essentially, I wanted to try to produce that book. Because that yeah. book is fucking fantastic. And then Thanks, I heard that man. you were going to do it. And I was like, well, you know, I can't fight that. <laughs> yeah, that, it's a long... It, that, that's a weird... Hadrian's Wall is a weird project. Um, or has a weird kind of background. For anyone who is not familiar, which would be... I would venture to guess 99% of the people listening <laughs> to this podcast. Um, Hadrian's Wall is uh, a comic book series that I uh, co-wrote with... Uh, one of my best friends, Alex Siegel, and it's illustrated by Rod Reese. Uh, it came out through Image Comics uh, two years ago, mm-hmm. three, or three years. It started three years ago and ended two years ago. It was eight issues long, and essentially, it's a murder mystery on a spaceship uh, where the main character is this investigator named Simon Moore, who takes a job out of spite. Uh, to go rubber stamp the supposed accidental death of this astronaut on a mm-hmm. deep space like survey ship, little nine-person crew survey ship for this company, Antares Interspace. And the reason he takes the job is because the guy who died on the ship used to be Simon's boss when they were cops. 
And this guy, his name's Edward, married Simon's ex-wife, Annabelle. Right, and she's right. on the ship with him. So this mutual friend who works for Antares comes to Simon in the opening of the book and is like, hey, so like uh, Edward Madigan is dead. And Simon, you know, there's, there's no love lost there. And he you know, asks <laughs> how it happened. And when the guy tells him like his spacesuit vented, which was like the cold open of the book, and then he says, uh, this guy, his name's Marshall, who works for Antares, says, uh, you know, Antares per company policy needs to send a third party investigator out to like look at this just to like dot all the I's, cross all the T's, but like it's a rubber stamp job. Mm-hmm. And Simon's like, yeah, I can't do it. And the guy's like, it's going to pay like a fuck ton of money. And like, this is easy money. It's easy money. And it not it like, it's a great like fuck you to your ex wife. Like, yeah. I mean, Schodenfreud's underrated, isn't it? <laughs> and he says no and then that night his ex-wife calls him because she kind of caught wind of that he was being courted for this and she's like under no uncertain term on no uncertain terms will you come out here like you know we got out here to get away from your shit like fuck you like stay away and of course simon had already said no but like after this call, like you turn the page and he's like on the ship, <laughs> you know, like, and then realizes there's much more going on. And um, he's a drug addict as well. And the painkillers that he takes are all tied to really his divorce, um, something that happened during the divorce. And so much of the book is about this kind of like, Jesus Christ, these two people hate each other. Like mm-hmm. what happened? And the backdrop to all this is this cold war between earth and their biggest colony. Uh, in the book, it's called uh, uh, Theta. Um, that's changed for, for the film. And at the end of the day, like the whole series is kind of like this exploration of broken relationships and how two people um, kind of, you know, can fall apart and what, if anything, can kind of bring them back together mm-hmm. in, in not even in the way, same like way as they had been together in the past, but like potentially in something new or, I don't want to. I don't want to give too much away. I guess, but um, I loved it, dude. I loved thanks, it. man. Well, and the reason the reason I say it's it's a weird project is because I started writing it after a breakup, um, mm-hmm. and it was that breakup where I also started writing this project called The Shadow Hours, which is a short that I made, but also it's a feature that we're we're like trying to get. Well, we're actually, we're doing, like, it's not announced yet, but, like, it's set up with somebody, like, Fuck yeah. really fucking cool. Um, <clears throat> so I can tell you about that off air. But <laughs> um, so I started kind of working on both projects at the same time. And the thing about Hadrian's Wall was that it was a book that was a follow-up to a series that we all did together called Cowl, which is about a, the Chicago Organized Workers League, which is a superhero labor union of 1960 Chicago. So it's kind of like Mad Men and The Wire crossed with like you know justice league or the avengers and it's as much about chicago and american politics of that era as it is the transition from the golden age to the silver age of of superheroes and that book was based on a film that i directed in college which is how like my career even started Mm -hmm. um so we were looking for a follow-up to that and i i knew i wanted to do this murder mystery on a spaceship Mm -hmm. but i had nothing else and i didn't have an emotional core to it i just knew like this is, it was actually an idea that I had, or a premise I had thought about for years of like, well, this could be a really contained movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never done a comic to try to get a movie made. That's just not in my DNA. Like it's, it's not something I believe in. Um, if you're making a comic, the comic, like that's what my career is, right? So like 
that's the comic needs to work onto itself. Right. If other things happen and if it opens other doors for you, which they have for me, and they've kind of become my equity as a director, great. But like, that's not, if you're doing it for that reason in the first place, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna, it, it's wrong. So anyway, so I had just gone through this breakup and she and I like, and we're still friends now, but like at the time it was real, it was real rough. Mm-hmm. And we still had to see each other at conventions, comic book conventions. Cause she, um, was, sort of in comics and definitely was friends with a lot of people. And so she, she loved book comics and mm-hmm. she would go to conventions and we'd run into each other. And you know, that dynamic, I don't know if you've yes. interacted. Yeah. You already know where I'm going. Like yes. it's not fun. Like, <laughs> no. and half the time each person feels like the other person doesn't give a fuck mm-hmm. anymore, you know? And I was just like, so fascinated, so fascinated with that dynamic of how two people, can have something between them and some build something together. And then like that it's gone or it changes and, and the you withdrawal, can't get it back. The, the fucking withdrawal from that. Yes. And so I, I was, Alec and I were like on a long walk. Um, cause we were roommates at the time as well. Just talking about the book and what it could be. And, and I really settled on this idea of like, I really gravitated toward this idea of like these exes having to navigate what happened between them. Mm-hmm. And so I made, we wrote the first four issues while I made the Shadow Hours short film, and in making the short film, like fell in love mm-hmm. uh, with someone new, <laughs> and um, you know it was great, and I ended up moving in uh, with her, and you know we were building this kind of life, and um, I don't think I've ever told the story publicly actually. Now that I think about it, <laughs> and um, then a week. What happened? Oh, she, the way the timing worked out is I moved in just as she was going out of town for two and a half months on a job. Oh, wow. And so I actually moved in after she left town. Like, that's just like how it worked out. That must have been strange. It was. And I remember us talking about it at one point and like we'd, we'd grown a little apart, but not in any way that was like, you know, I didn't think was, there was a problem or anything like that. And, and, um, and so I, I moved in, or, or yeah, I remember us talking about like, I guess, I was like, I guess I'm gonna, cause she got the job and it was like, we'd already made plans. Like, and I'd given my notice to my roommates and the building and the lease and all that shit. And it was like, I guess I'm gonna move in while you're not here. And Weird. we were kind of already living together for like nine months, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and she's like, yeah, I guess so. I was like, is that weird? And she's like, a little, I guess, but whatever, like, we'll deal with it. Like move whatever you want. Like we'll deal with it when I get home. And so then she left and, and I moved in and I took care of the cat and the place and everything. And I had a video game job at the time, so I couldn't leave town. I had to be in, it was like a writer's room. And so then the first issue of Hadrian's wall was about to come out and I hadn't touched it since I'd written the first four. And I remember doing press for the first issue as it was about to come out. And a part of that was also that we were premiering the Shadow Hour short mm-hmm. at Holly Shorts Film Festival. So like my publicist managed to get coverage for the Shadow Hours piggybacking off of the release of Hadrian's Wall. Cool. And I remember hanging up from doing interviews and I was like standing in the apartment and I was thinking to myself, oh man, I really need to write issues five through eight. I wonder how I'm going to do that. Like, I'm so not that person anymore. Like, I'm in this happy, right. like, loving relationship. And, like, a week later, she came home and uh, changed her mind. 
Brutal. And so like in the middle of the night, like I'm packing a bag and she's like, you're leaving in the middle. I was like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is, I'm not going to stay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't know what issues five through eight of Hadrian's wall are, but I have a feeling, um, they're going to be really emotionally like, yeah. resonant. And I've never done that before. I've never written as I'm going through something. I just, I can't, but because the book was, was, was yeah. coming out, yeah. I had to do it. Yeah. And so the last, the back half of the series is very personal for me. And so I remember, cause then I, I was like, you know, I, I decided I was like, I don't want to like get a new apartment because I have to, like while my head is really screwed up and like, so I stayed on friends' couches and guest mm-hmm. rooms and stuff like that for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. And a couple friends kept telling me like, take a trip, just take a trip. And I was like, nah, it's so cliched. And then I realized why people do that. And so I booked like a one-way ticket to Europe and I just like went to Europe by myself for like five weeks. And the great thing about the comic book industry and the community is like, I know people in every country because it's worldwide. Like there are yeah. creators everywhere that, and we all work together and see each other at conventions and things like things like that. And I have a publisher in France. I have two publishers in France. So like I got hooked up in Paris and one of them was publishing Hadrian's wall. And so while I'm in Europe um, and like the actor from my, my short film, Tom Riley, mm-hmm. like he and his, his wife, like, uh, well, there. I mean, it's public. I mean, he he and Lizzie Kaplan got married, and so they have this flat in London. And Tom was like, "Hey, Lizzie and I want you to like take our flat like when you go over there." It was like, "Holy shit!" So like I it, like everyone was just like so that's wonderful, awesome and supportive. Yeah. And I was like standing in their flat, like trying to write because I was still writing. I wrote Power Rangers comics as well for like years, so I was like writing an issue of Power Rangers, and my manager. Um, who, you know, we've since parted ways, but my manager at the time was like calling me while I'm in London. She's like, hey, uh, when are you coming back? Because like, <laughs> there are these places that want Hadrian's Wall. And I was like, I don't know. I, I, I'm not even sure. Like, you know, I hadn't even finished the series yet. Right. I knew where it was going and what it was going to like be, but the actual mechanics of like finishing it all, I hadn't done. I was still working on it and processing things and working in things that were going on in my life into the book and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point when I came back here, um, and we pitched, there was a big producer that wanted it. And as has happened over the years, uh, many times you realize when you've created something in another medium, uh, most of the time, doesn't matter what samples you have. doesn't matter that I have like some pretty, solid short films and a big, you know, background in, in filmmaking and directing. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter that I got started writing at Marvel because of a movie I made. They don't want you. They want your IP. Yeah. So it, I had a choice to make and I ultimately decided, yeah, you know what? I'm, I'm going to not do this because I had worked up like the whole like 20 minute pitch and everything on the movie. And they're like, well, it's going to be real hard to like sell this with Kyle doing it. <laughs> and so at that point, and I hadn't finished the Shadow Hours feature yet because it was too like emotionally draining because it was connected to this person. And I'd been trying to write it the whole time we were together and yeah. the short and everything else. 
And so I, I remember I was like, you know what? Like, fuck this. And I like put all my comics work aside for like two weeks and I finished the feature. And then also like continued to rework the pitch on Hadrian's wall. But then at a certain point I realized like it just wasn't, this was like a part of my life that I don't need to go relive this, you know, like yeah, you, you opening up old fucking wounds. And shit. So I actually was on the phone with Morley one day yep. and I was like, you know what? I don't need to do this. Like over the years, people have tried to get me to part with books of mine um, where I won't be involved and I've been reluctant to do it, but you know what? Fuck it. Like let's roll the dice on one. Like I don't need to do Hadrian's wall. And he's like, okay. And he, he's like, I can bring it up in staff meeting and see what other talent we might be able to attract to it and other writers, et cetera. And there's a buddy of mine, Robbie Thompson, who's an amazing screenwriter and comics writer. Uh, and he's always kind of told me, he's like, dude, he's like, most people have like one bullet in the gun. He's like, you've got like, you've got a full clip, like let one go and see what happens, you know? And so we were kind of, so I'm, I'm bringing it up because in that period, I would have been very open to Don't say it. parting with it. <laughs> uh, but what ended up happening was this time last year, we had like mm-hmm. three big things happen in a row yep. where I did sell one of my other books to a pretty awesome um, production company uh, that it hasn't been announced yet, so I can't, I can't really talk about it. But, and that was one where I was like, you know what? I don't need to be involved in that one because Gunpowder and Sky uh, had been really interested in the Shadow Hour short, but uh, they also... Well, so they had been really interested in the Shadow Hour short and they wanted to put it out through Dust, their like, YouTube like, sci-fi you know, mm-hmm. brand channel. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't remember why I didn't really pursue that, but we didn't pursue it. And then when the script, the Shadow Hour script was ready, it had gone out and they got a hold of it and they really liked it. But they also were like, wait, didn't he write this book, Hadrian's Wall? And my manager was like, yeah. And they're like, well, we want to do that. Like everyone at the company loves this book. Like we want to make it. And because of the Shadow Hour short plus the Shadow Hour's feature script, they were able, like we were able to make a, a strong enough case and they convinced their higher ups that, those should basically serve as samples to hire me to adapt Hadrian's Wall myself. That's awesome. And so once that happened, once that was an opportunity or possibility on the table, I got out of my own way and was like, oh yeah, of course I'm going to do it. You know? <laughs> Dude, that's great, man. I mean, it- so that's a super long winded no, story. it's good. It's good. It's good to hear all that too, because it makes it easier that it isn't available. <laughs> <laughs> no, because like I said, I was doing the hunt and I've got a few, I can't, obviously I'm in the same boat. I can't talk sure. about on the, on air, but I've got a few people that are like anything else and people that I'm in with that I'm like, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when I did the hunt for that, I was like, well, oh, this would be cool. Well, that's what kind of why I was asking if you write, um, cause I, uh, you know, it's weird. I only ever wrote, so I would like my whole life, so I'd have material mm-hmm. to direct. Yeah. Since I was a kid. And it just so happened that that kind of skill set ended up becoming my main mm-hmm. job, main career. Yeah. So, yeah, I had a different path. So, mm-hmm. for me, when I, I originally went to school for directing and did all that. Right. Uh, and when I, I've told it on the show before, when I came out, um, 
I decided instead of staying in New York, I was like, I learned so much about producing when I was in New York and how difficult it was to produce in a city that had zero connections. So I was like, can you imagine what I could do in a city where I have connections? So I went back to Boston and I started to do that. So I go back to that town that I had all those spots in and I was a young, you know, 22, 23-year-old director. At the time, this was pre-digital. All the DPs were film DPs. (laughs) And so I couldn't convince a fucking you know, old school DP to shoot my shit. Right. So I had to learn how to do it. And so I fell pretty hard into cinematography. Mm -hmm. And so that became my course. And I became a photographer and I was hired as a photographer and I became a cinematographer and I did all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, it took me a while to come back. There was a period of time where I was just a cinematographer and then I was a director that can also shoot. Right. And then sort of come back around to where I am right now where it's like, I work with great cinematographers. I'm just a director. So it's this weird, long fucking process because you can never come out of the gate as just a director. No, and and the thing is, like, every director has to come from somewhere. Like, especially out here, like, everyone needs a very easy narrative to be able to sum you up with. Yeah. And so it's, it's common for a lot of directors to come out of, being um, cinematographers like or commercials um, mm-hmm. or VFX a lot mm-hmm. of times or mm-hmm. like really prominent writers. Mm-hmm. And I remember at some point, because I have this like whole like, I have like seven years in my kind of life and career where I wasn't shooting at all. And I was so, so resentful of my comics career. And when I say comics career, like at that time, I was writing like big Batman books. Like yeah, I fuck was, you. I was writing Nightwing. I was writing... Um, Batman Eternal. I was writing Batman Beyond. You had a career that people would fucking cut a throat to have. Yeah, and I was I had so much resentment for it because I felt like I was doing it at the expense of the career that I've wanted since I was a kid. And why did you make that decision? Was it because it just showed up and it was a good decision to make? Or was it an easier decision? Or were you avoiding being a director? All of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did a movie... Well, let me say this statement first, and then I can jump back. We'll sure. fucking we'll Nolan this shit. <laughs> um, so I had I was I had all this resentment towards my comics career, and in large part, and this will get I'll answer this with more detail in a second. Like to your point about like were you afraid? Absolutely. Um, I got really hot at like twenty three, and then. I burned all that momentum because I wasn't ready. Mm. And so I did six months of generals and studio meetings. And I added it up one time. I did about like 70 meetings in six months. Holy shit. And I was up for some, some, some big shit. Like I was, I was up for a movie. They didn't end up making a Warner Brothers movie. that was like, I mean, they were planning it to be like a $90 million movie. And I was going in and pitching on it and like a whole big, you know, presentation and process. I, I had made it through the producer side of it. And then they brought me into the studio and it was a whole thing. And then I remember talking to Morley afterwards cause they didn't even end up making the movie. And I was like, is it, is it going to be like, cause I was doing rip reels. I was putting together mm-hmm. tons of previs art, like everything. And I was like, is it going to be like that every single time? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, I just like spent oh, three weeks of my life and all this money prepping on a thing that they're not even for sure and ultimately haven't made. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, but it's about you being seen that way. 
And at 23, I didn't really understand that. I've always been more mature than my age. I've carried myself uh, that way, at least, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess I've presented that way, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that time, like looking back on it, it was like there were all these opportunities and everyone was just waiting for me to bring it. I mean, I had a, I had a, a senior VP at a big studio telling Morley and, and my, um, I think more, I think Morley was my manager at that time. I was still at UTA, but with different agents Yeah, telling the, my whole team, like we think like, yeah, his first movie should be like a $40 million <laughs> movie. And we were all going like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, but everyone was just waiting for me to bring a script in. And I was like, I was 23 and I was like, how? I don't know how to do that. How do I, how do I write a feature? You like, need that experience. Yeah. So the comics career had opened up. And so it was like, well, I guess I'll do that. And like, once they offer you Batman, like no one says no to fucking Batman. Right. right. But so years over those seven years, that's what was going on. But my, I signed with a new manager. Um, Cause I kind of lost my rep team where uh, that my main point agent on the team at UTA jumped to ICM and so uh then I was with ICM and Morley when he was at 360 but then Morley went back to UTA to be an agent again and so it was like I have to choose between UTA and ICM and so Mm -hmm. I chose to stay with Morley and so then it was just kind of like me and him I got a new manager that guy was like was awful and so then I ended up signing with a different manager who was like a friend of mine and she was kind of just starting out doing this stuff and she presented me, started presenting me in emails that I was like BCC'd on as Kyle is a filmmaker out of the comic book world. And I remember calling her up and I was like, no, that's not, that's not right. Like I only write comics because of the films I've made. And she's like, every director has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Like no, there aren't any directors who have come out of comic books, but that doesn't mean you can't. And it's an easy narrative to describe, you know, for you as we present you to these places. And she saw in me something that I didn't see yet, which was that, and it has since come to pass. She goes, you're a world builder. She's like, you are a world builder. You get, you're going to come in and you're going to take a concept and you're going to build it out and find all the most interesting avenues to explore that concept to its fullest kind of thematic and emotional potential. Yeah. And she's like, that is a skill set that will always be in demand. And the fact that you can create books as well, where you demonstrate that, that those books ultimately will become kind of your, your assets and currency. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's my super fucking long winded answer (laughs) or way of, of saying every director has to come out of, Something. something first, especially yeah. out here. Because um, they need the narratives to be very simple out here. They yeah, need. yeah. And, and to answer your, your first question, like, yeah, I made this big superhero noir that we put on Vimeo and got a lot of attention for, and this was in 2008. Yeah. And um, there was this, this, uh, this artist that I had hired. When we were making the movie, I had decided... Like I wanted to try to get as much kind of like street cred for the project as I could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd, I'd been an intern at, uh, for Richard Donner and Lauren Schuler Donner. And so I was trying to, you know, there were certain c- creators who had, you know, connections there that I was asking like, Oh, could they consult or could you consult or like read the script, et cetera. 
Um, cause I was thinking like, once I put it out, like, um, it would be great if there was, there were some people involved that could help and, or we could put their names on it, that sort of thing, right, give right. it some more kind of credibility. Yeah. And this was the era where, you know, there had been a bunch of fan films like that, uh, Batman dead end and, mm-hmm. and Grayson and, and things like that. I have a, I have, I have opinions on, on fan films as a, you know, as a vehicle. Um, and, and part of it comes from watching in that era. It's like, you know, yeah, Sandy Calora is doing this, this killer, like Batman predator fan film, but it doesn't matter how high the production value is. Like you're always going to be compared to what Warner brothers is doing and you're not gonna, it's, it's not gonna, you can't compete. You, you, I mean, you can get, close enough but like there will always be things that remind viewers that they're not watching the real thing yep and so my end as a director like you can't actually i'll be really curious to see how um the gentleman how phil's star wars i listened to the podcast last last week's podcast yeah yeah and and watch the film and it's great it's great i'll be really curious to see what the reaction is like um because i do feel like that's one that actually could be the exception to the rule, uh, in my opinion. It's fascinating. We'll talk about it off camera or mm-hmm. off mic. He had some follow-ups on it. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know. But yeah. but yeah, so so at that time, I decided like, well, look, you're not going to get hired for the job you want if you if you actually do that job. You know, like you're not going to get hired to go do a Batman movie by doing a Batman fan film. That's just, that's yeah. never going to happen. Yeah. But for the same amount of money as some of these filmmakers are putting in to create these fan films, I could build out my own world. Yep. And their archetype kind of archetypal superheroes, or that's, that was the beginnings of it. Um, and I can build out basically my whole world that is my own, you know, I wasn't using the term IP at that point, but I can build out my own kind of, um, characters, world platform, etc. And so I decided to hire this illustrator named Eric White, who had kind of a 60 style to design all the characters and then by the time the movie was done, he liked the movie so much. I remember him asking me, he's like, hey, do you have, a, do you have an agent? And I just graduated from film school and it took me a year to make this movie. And we shot it all, you know, Super 16, mm-hmm. um, tons of VFX, uh, stunt doubles, wire rigs, the whole nine yards. And I was like, no, I mean, I, I'm still finishing the movie, you know. And he's like, uh, well, I want to introduce you to mine. He goes, uh, well, it was actually his manager at Circle of Confusion. And then he goes, uh, have you ever been to San Diego Comic-Con? And I was like, no. He's like, well, I have an f- extra badge. Come down with me and bring DVDs of the movie. And he proceeded to introduce me to everyone he knew mm. when we were down there and teed me up to give them a copy of the movie. And it had a killer poster that was painted. So like when you looked at it, you, you know, you go, oh, wow. Like it's not a thing you would throw away. Right. This is, this is interesting. Yeah. And then once the movie, and we got some interest in some meetings. I got some meetings off of that. Yeah. But then once the movie was done... Eric sent, put it on Vimeo, and literally the next morning, he sent an email to 200 people. Everyone he knew in film, TV. He had a pilot deal at ABC at the time for one of his books that he was adapting himself. And everyone in comics that he knew as well, saying like, hey, here's this really cool short film that I did character designs for, and here's the filmmaker's email and contact info if you want to get in touch. And uh, one of the first emails back was from Joe Casada, who's the editor-in-chief of Marvel. And now he's like one of the VPs of Marvel. 
And Joe had watched the whole thing. It, it was it was a twenty seven minute movie. Like we didn't yeah. even, even have a trailer. <laughs> and he watched it. And he was so complimentary. And he was like, "If I can ever do anything for you, let me know." That's and amazing. I've loved comics my whole life, and I loved Joe's work. And you know, I'd followed. I mean, I was very versed in it, especially at that time. And I wrote back, and I was like, I just took a shot, and I was like, "Well, if you're ever looking for new writers, uh, you should let me know." You know. And he's like, "Well, we're always looking for new writers. Like, what kind of characters do you like?" And I told him and he's like, all right here's what i'm gonna do he's like i find it often works best for new creators to not pitch to me directly and i understand that now um just understanding the politics of how all this stuff works he goes so let me send the movie around to my senior editorial staff and we'll see if any of them bite and if they'll take you under their wing and tom brevoort did and so i pitched to tom for a year like 20 stories just blind before i finally landed on something he needed, which was an issue, a Captain America one shot. Oh, wow. And then once you do that, it makes it a little easier to get the next one and then the next one. And then once you're published at Marvel, it makes you more attractive to DC. Yeah. And then once DC started to do the new 52, I was writing a big Batman miniseries called Gates of Gotham with Scott Snyder. Right place, right time. They were going to relaunch the company for the first time in 75 years. And Scott was going to take over Batman because Grant Morrison was going to leave. And... I had a great relationship with Scott. Everyone knew Dick Grayson. Nightwing was my all-time favorite character. Nightwing was going to play a big part in Scott's Court of Owls run. Mm-hmm. And so it ultimately made sense for me to take over Nightwing. And he's been my favorite character since I was 10. That's so they, wild. they gave me the keys to the, to the Ferrari at 26. So how long did that take? Was that three years? Was that three years of you getting into comics and then getting to Nightwing? Like how long was that process? Um, well... I wrote an issue. Of, I wrote the Captain America issue when I was 24 mm-hmm. in 2009, and then I almost did a big Winter Soldier one-shot or miniseries. I can't remember, uh, and it fell apart. And then they offered me an Avengers Origins one-shot that came out like, well, I did it a year later, but it didn't come out until like two years later for some reason because it was all painted artwork. So I only did one issue in 09, one issue in 2010, but then from that in 2010, I met the DC, the Batman group editor, and he gave me a shot to write these origins for the French-Algerian Batman of Paris Hmm. called The Night Runner. And then, so I wrote all those, and then The Daily Show did a big segment on him, Hmm. and it caused, there was a bit of controversy about it, because he was from like a single mother you know, Muslim upbringing. And from that, I got the Gates of Gotham book and then Nightwing in, I started Nightwing and Deathstroke for the New 52 in 2011. Wow. So, so two years, two years. And talk about patience because it's a, it's a long run. Well, and yeah, you can't pay your rent with that, especially no. starting out. Yeah. Um, so I was working, I was working as a sound editor mm-hmm. at Sound Deluxe and uh, the Hollywood, well, I was on the Hollywood Edge side, but I was also, cutting some stuff um at sound deluxe it was kind of this weird moment in time where like there was like kind of this career laid out for me where i could have continued cutting sound yeah yeah and getting into the sound editors guild and you know making good money like cutting on movies but it's not what i wanted to do yeah um so i ended up quitting to go write batman (laughs) (laughs) sounds awful yeah yeah (laughs) That's cool, man. 
That's a cool origin story. Thanks, man. As you can tell, I, I tend to talk a lot. So it's fine. That's what these things are. People like to listen. That's what the <laughs> podcast is all about. Now that's rad, man. That's really cool. So um it's funny because you and I have a lot of different parallels mm-hmm. with this. And it's a lot of people that show up on the show, because you never really think about it when you're getting started. You're just like, all right, so if I get good at I just got to get good at the tr- at like the technique and I got to figure this thing out. And you're like, all right, if I just follow the rules, there are no fucking rules. And then you get in it and you're like, I have no idea what way I should go, what way I shouldn't go. And then you end up just sort of taking opportunity mm-hmm. and then uh, trying to roll that opportunity like you did into, uh, into finally coming back around. Yeah. I was I mean? telling, I was telling somebody, I was giving somebody, well, I don't want to say advice, but I was giving them my opinion um, the other day, some other filmmakers and, they're very established. Um, they're very established in a certain area, but it's not the area they want to be in. Mm-hmm. And I was saying, like, I feel the exact same way. Where it's like, I, I climbed this mountain, yep, and it turns out it's it it's not the right mountain, you know. And so the idea of starting on a new mountain from the bottom, a lot of times that's what happens. But there are ways if you can position yourself right to at least parlay the conquering of that first mountain into starting a little higher up on the second exactly. mountain. You know? Exactly. Um, and so that's that's kind of, yeah, I mean, it's, you go through whatever door or window that opens for you, you know, but I think it is important to have an eye on the bigger picture and in terms of what you really want to be doing, because it's very, very easy, especially out here when the seasons, we don't have seasons. Shit's either on fire or like mud sliding down a hill. Those are our seasons in, in <laughs> Southern California. Um, time becomes very uh, strange. Things just all of a sudden you blink and years go. It's been years, you know. I've been in the same apartment for three years, uh, and there are things that I can't, it's like, when was that? That was three years ago. Like it feels like a year only. You know? Yeah, I've been hearing that. That you, without the seasons, you don't have those markers. And so, if you don't have an eye on what you really want to be doing and trying to game plan and strategize how to put yourself in a position um, with the material you have to get closer to that, you know, ten years can go by, and you might not actually, you know. You might end up closer to it just by the nature of like doing good work and, and things like that. But on the flip side, you might, you know, out of sight is out of mind. Yeah, it's tough because then you have to stay. That's what we were talking about earlier. You have to stay valid. You have to stay current. You yeah. Have to stay at the forefront. And, you know, you've done this long enough. You've done enough pitches and shit. You know, you walk into a space and everybody thinks you're fucking awesome. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's like, oh, shit, because we just pitched we just pitched a new movie two weeks ago mm-hmm. and we have a whole new piece put together. It's really cool. Uh, and we talked to our guys and they're just like, cool. So we have time for one pitch and then this whole city shuts down until February 1st. Right. Right. And so they're like, do you want to blow it? Do you not want to blow it? Do you want to wait till after February? And then of course we're sitting here going like, fuck, you know, like, let's just go. Let's just go. That's what happened with who's there too. Or we did who's there around the same time. Uh, the short and everything and walked it in and surprised the guys with it. And uh, they were like, cool. Uh, we can't really do much until after Sundance. Uh, yeah. And you're just like, fuck me. God damn it. 
And yeah. it just, that's why these things take fucking ages. And I never really understood that until I started to play this game where it's like, got a great idea. Why does it take eight years to get the fucking thing going? Why does it take 10 years to get the fucking thing going? Mm-hmm. And it's because everybody has like these weird fucking rhythms out here. And everything's slower out here. Everything's so much fucking slower. And I believe wholeheartedly that because of the traffic and how much driving you have to do. <laughs> Seriously. Like I would get in the uh, East Coast, I'd get 15 things done in a day. Right. Out here, I'll get five. And not because I'm not. Like I remember the other night I was sitting with Gina and I'm like, what the fuck? I didn't get half my shit done. And I feel right. like I've been working my ass off. Right. And she's like, you were on the road for four hours today. Yeah. Uh, I've definitely felt that a lot lately. I, I'm rehabbing like a pretty decent injury i tore my acl oh, last shit. year oh, yeah shit. and then in the process of <laughs> but i tore it in a pretty uh pretty awesome way i i hyperextended it playing basketball and then i finished it off <laughs> i was getting on stage at a power rangers convention and it popped and i fell in front of a thousand people and two power rangers caught me jesus and i like blacked out from the pain but it was a live table read of scenes from my book that i was i put together and was running oh and like God. i brought in audio hardware so we could do the zordon voice live for everyone like as a surprise and you blacked out and i was like they were like gonna call an ambulance and i was like no i think it's just dislocated i think it popped back in because it had, something similar happened to like a month earlier and i'm yeah. thinking to myself like we can't tear your acl twice turns out uh <laughs> it was jesus. either fully torn at that point or i finished it off and I, but I, what I knew is like, all right, I can walk because this, you know, a month ago happened. Get me up. We've got like 20 minutes before it stiffens up and like just we can do this. And so we did. <laughs> and I ran this fucking table read and it was like one of the highlights of my life. Uh, while meanwhile, under the table, I knew it was like, this is really not good. Uh, so I drank, drank a ton of bourbon afterwards, <laughs> got the MRI, found out, tore my ACL and meniscus. Had the surgery in November of last year. Yeah. The rehab didn't go well for the first nine months. And so I started over at a new place. And that place, I live in like Beverly Fairfax, like West Hollywood area. Yeah. And the new rehab place is in Brentwood, which is on the other side of the 405. It's actually where I lived for eight years, which would have been way more. I could have walked there from my old place. So I'm driving over there three days a week. And depending on what time the appointment is, it takes yeah. me an hour to get there. Yeah. And then to a two-hour session, and all of a sudden, half your day is gone. Yep. And because you got to drive there and back, and it's like, how am I, how did I only get a handful of pages done today? You yep, know? yep. Um, so, I, yeah, you're, you're not wrong, um, especially on the driving component of it all. gang it is time to take a break and celebrate all the people that help make the show happen make the show possible sponsors and as you know without sponsors there would be no podcast and the only way i get sponsors is if you click through right so below this episode on whatever platform you're listening to it on you'll find the links specific to each one of the sponsors for the show they're traceable trackable links so it's super important that you click through it really is because they can tell when I'm sending people their way. Now, there have been people that I have sent 
to buy new computers. I know for a fact that a lot of you have come to me specifically and said, hey, look, I'm looking to be a, buy a new Puget. Who can we talk to? How can we get there? Click the link below, right? And you're going to end up with all sorts of sweet, sweet holiday money, Christmas money, Hanukkah money, whatever the fuck it is. You're going to have that next week and it's time to start spending it, right? That's what we do as Americans. We get money and we spend it. We buy shit to make ourselves feel better, right? So it's, it's time for that. Okay, and here's the best thing you could do. Click through on any of the links below or go to the official website in lovewiththeprocess.com, right? And here's the cool thing. For those of you that stick with this through the um, sponsor reads, I'm going to give you a super secret surprise at the end of the sponsor reads. So stick to the end. There's a special holiday gift from me from the show that I'll tell you about at the end of the Okay, so first up. Our good buddies over at Puget Systems, they have been with me since the very beginning. I love these guys. If you are a new filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you're a music engineer, if you're someone that just needs a new desktop PC, right? Go to PugetSystems.com because these days you don't have to own a Mac or an Apple to be a pro. All the programs work on both systems. Why not get a PC? And I know a lot of you are like, well, PCs crash all the time. You know what? I went to fucking make a new folder on my laptop right now for Mac, and I had a pinwheel for about 15 fucking minutes. All right? So let's let's cut the bullshit. That's not what happens. Okay? So PCs, they run sweet. It's the same kind of operating system, folder-based system. Don't have to be worried about that. And if you're in my business, you're probably working on Adobe, right? Adobe runs just as good, if not better, on a PC because it's all open. You can actually go through and find those fucking hidden files. Doesn't it get annoying when you're like, where the hell did it put that autosave file? And then you got to go through and try to show folders or find hidden folders and all that kind of bullshit. It's so much easier to find that stuff on a PC, by the way. One of the things I love about it. Anyways, go to PugetSystems.com. You can choose your, your basic system based upon what software you use. So if you use like Premiere, click on the Premiere link, they'll offer, they'll suggest a baseline system for you. Um, and then you can talk to them directly because they like to interact with their customers. Okay, that's what I did. You go there, they love to talk with creators and they go, okay, what's your budget? What do you need? How can we build this thing out to be as fast as possible based upon what your budget is? It's perfect, I love it. Completely upgradable. These guys, real, true, honest customer support. You're not dealing with some sort of fucking automated system or a bot. You're talking to real people. One of the things that's so fascinating about them, and I learned this from the owner of the company. He was telling me that all the employees there have access specifically to a gift account on Amazon, meaning they don't have to go through any red tape to get you what you need. So if you write to them and say, look, I need like a specific kind of mouse or a specific kind of dongle or something. They can immediately, without having to get permission from their bosses, access this account and get you what you need and send it in the mail. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, these these guys love building computers. They've always loved building computers. They're a really small company that does it, but it's better because then you're getting very specifically custom-made machines. And they actually put everything through a benchmark test You'll get a folder with your machine where they'll show um, uh, predator vision. They'll show they'll show heat vision on how the heat taxes the um, the actual core of it. Fucking, I'm an idiot, but how it works through the system. It's really cool. <laughs> I did a shitty job on that read today. 
go to PugitSystems.com. I can't say enough good things about them. I have edited every movie that I've done in the past six years now on a Puget PC. So everything you've seen has been on that. And I don't have to wait around for it to keep up. So go to PugitSystems.com. Woo! That was a tough one. <laughs> All right. Next up, uh, good buddies over at Quasar Science. One of the coolest advancements in our field has been LED lighting, LED technology, right? And if you're a freelance uh, DP, if you're a gaffer, if you're someone that wants to have some lights in your kit to play around, I highly suggest you go to Quasar Science. Quasar makes these amazing LED, LED tubes. So they do bicolor tubes, which will either give you a tungsten or daylight, which is perfect, or they do full rainbow uh, color tubes, which will do any color of the rainbow, which are also really great. Uh, they come in different sizes. I think it's like one foot, two foot, four foot. Don't quote me on that. Uh, go, go to Quasar Science to check it out. The cool thing about them is that um, they don't draw a lot of power. So you don't have to worry about how many light units you put on a circuit. For those of you who have lit films before, you know if you're dealing with HMIs, you're dealing with tungsten lights, there's only a certain amount of wattage that you can draw off a house circuit. You don't really have to worry about that when you're dealing with these, which is super cool. And if you're a pro that works on films, you know Quasar is always on the trucks. It's always there. These tubes are so great. They're great for uh, key lights. They're good for fill. They're really good for edge lights and they're small and contained. So if you're riding around in the hatchback and you barely have enough room to put your camera in the front seat, you can just get a really skin little, skinny little case and stick it between your rear seats and you'll be fine. So go check them out, quasarscience.com. All right, next up, good buddies over at Rule Boston Camera. If you are an independent film person, if you're a DP, if you're a director, if you're a crew person, I highly suggest it's so important and imperative for you to go and form a great relationship with your local rental house. Uh, on the East Coast, anywhere above New York, Rule Boston Camera is the place. They have the most gear, they have all that really great gear, the stuff that you want to get your hands on, the cameras that you don't want to buy because you'll never pay off. Um, these guys have it and they love to teach you stuff so you can actually go into their shop They'll pull the gear out. You can play with it. You can mess with it. You can learn it. And there's nothing better than being able to say that whatever producer hired you, I can guarantee that the gear is going to work. And if it doesn't work, these guys will bring it to me. That is the benefit of renting locally to where you're shooting. Because if you're renting online with one of those companies, they can't bring you replacement gear. Right? That's the big issue. Because we all know equipment goes down no matter how good it is. So if you're looking for a rental place on the East Coast, Rule Boston Camera is it. If you have a favorite rental place anywhere else in the country, or I know there's a bunch of people in Europe listening to the show, send me a note. Tell me who your favorite rental places are. I would love to meet these guys. So send me a note. Okay. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? Uh, well, in the meantime, I'm just going to say this. You sat through the reads, which is really great. You got to go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. Now, if you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, not only will you be able to sort through the episodes based upon subject material, makes it really easy for you guys because this is episode 60 at this point. So when you're looking at it on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you're just seeing names. And a lot of you may not recognize who those names are and you won't know what they do. If you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, I separate the episodes out based upon 
what each guest does. So if you want to listen to the directors, boom, there's a director section. If you want to listen to crew members, there's a crew member section. If you want to listen to artists, anybody else, it's all there. It's all broken up. It's really nice. And the main page, which I fucking love, and I spent time designing this. Um, I spent like four days putting this thing together for you guys. On the main page, if you scroll down a little bit, you will find a Christmas gift from me to you. This is something that I'm giving out to listeners of the show and my close friends and people that I work with. It is my goodbye 2019 Spotify playlist, okay? And you're like, what? Yeah, I'm one of those dudes that comes from that generation where I used to make mixtapes, okay? (laughs) Or burn CDs, you know? And so I would spend that time putting together a curated sound list. And this playlist is sort of a collection of the best of the best, the stuff that I've been listening to up to this point. Um, And this is a playlist that is perfect for like road trips. I think it clocks in at like two hours or an hour and 45 minutes. Um, I love driving through Los Angeles at night with this playlist because if you know me and you know what I like, there's a lot of new, uh, new retro wave. There's a lot of synth stuff on here. And there's some really cool old goody stuff on here, right? So go check it out. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you will find my goodbye 2019 Spotify playlist featuring music from Power Glove, Perturbator, Big Black Delta, Carpenter Brute, and of course, my buddy Code Electro. I think you guys are going to dig it. I spent some time putting it together. It took me a couple of days to curate the list. I suggest you don't listen to it on shuffle. You can if you want, but if you want to see the way that I've laid it out, if you want to go through the experience, start at track one and let it run. All right. And uh, if you want to support the show, speaking of listening to shit, uh, I haven't done this in a while, but we're still doing the Audible sign-up. So you can get a 30-day free trial from audible.com, which also includes a free audiobook. If you click the the link below, I think it's audibletrial.com backslash love with the process don't quote me on that the link is below the episode click through on it if you've never done it before if you've never signed up for audible each person that does so it sends us money then you can listen to shit for free for 30 days you're probably going to want to stick around on it because the books are fantastic i don't have time to read books i listen to books audible is perfect for that um but please go do it it's the best way to help me out for the holiday season if you haven't signed up for Audible yet, do it. The link is below. I think it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. I think that's what it is. I should have that shit written down before I do my reads, but I'm a piece of shit. Okay. And last, 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 but not least, please continue to go to Instagram. Follow me at Mike Petchy on Instagram or follow the podcast at in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process pod on Instagram. Uh, on my personal place, on my personal page there at Mike Petchy, you can pick up prints for the holidays. I'm still giving out prints from 12 Cam. I still have some leftover prints from the Grindhouse stuff. I still have a stack of these things. So what I'm doing is I'm selling them. I'm selling them to you guys. Generally, they're about 40 bucks a piece, but all that money goes to the show. All right? So if you want to support the show, you got some extra holiday cash, you got some Christmas cash, or you forgot to buy a gift for your friend, hook it up. I'll sign the, the prints for you. I'll put them together. Go to at Mike Petchy on Instagram and check it out. All right. I think that is it. Yeah, I got through all of that. Whew. 
Holy shit. All right, good. Let's get back to the show. Part of what I'm really curious about for you, uh, or with regards to, to, to you, because I don't know that many directors. Like, I know a lot of people who want to direct, mm-hmm. but I don't know that many like working directors. When it comes to features, mm-hmm. um, on the one hand, I've, I was kind of, I've been kind of my own bottleneck for like seven or eight years because it took me so long to get mentally ready to, to actually like write a feature that I wanted to go make. Yep. Um, on the flip side, I feel like as a director who had, you haven't made a feature yet. Not yet. Right? As a director who, as another director, mutual director who hasn't made a feature. Yep. Getting, enticing a writer to work with you on a feature has to be challenging. I have a few friends who are, who are directors that I just say, I don't know that many, but uh, some of my friends that I went to film school with, et cetera, that are really good shooters. Yep. Like they're in the same boat where it's like, how do I get a feature? Like I can't like going up for an open directing assignment is kind of the equivalent of like playing the lottery. Yes. Uh, as a screenwriter of just like writing a script and putting it out into the ether, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like, so how do you, how have you found the experience and the process of enticing a writer, not only to work with you, but to believe in you? Yeah. Because you guys are going out with this project together. I got lucky, dude. For me, it was, um, my philosophy has always been, it's a communal thing. So I think one of the reasons why I'm successful as a director is that I do not see myself as a tyrant and I do not believe in uh, geniuses. Mm -hmm. I think that directors are just dudes that have the ability, dudes or girls, that have the ability to choose correctly. And and understand that there are uh, a million different selections that could be made, and you just be sort of like a tastemaker where you're like, this is nice, this is nice, cool, bring two of those. You know what I mean? That's the thing. And so for me, it's never, I have this fucking vision, and it's my idea, it's my thing. It's I see it uh, because, as you know, it takes fucking forever for any of these things to be made, and if I'm one of those guys that stands up on stage and it's like, look what I did. Then the rest of my life is fucking miserable. Like most of my life, like 98%, (laughs) 99.5% of my life is miserable. And so for me, I like the process of all of it. That's why the show's the process, all that crap. But I love location scouting. I love meeting people. I love hanging out with people. I love having barbecues. That's the fucking deal. And so when I put together my projects, my projects are fun. Straight up. And so, like, uh, on 12KM, when I did 12KM, I did that movie in another language. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, I had shot everything. So I was the DP for all the music videos. I was the DP for all that shit. Mm-hmm. And I decided to do this movie after head injury, which I've talked about on the show multiple times, but I'll tell you about it afterwards. Um, and uh, I was like, look, I don't have the physical ability to be in a space to go, okay, Here's the blocking. Here's your line read. That's where you put the 12K, and this is what's going on, and deal with the language. I can't do yeah, it. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I, I can't do it. And yeah. so like, I, I was like, look, I'm going to hire a cinematographer, and I'm going to find a cinematographer that being a cinematographer and being a storyboard artist and doing all that stuff can deal with me. Yeah. Which is first and foremost, but also is better than I am. That's the number one. That's my, (laughs) I say that all the time and slightly like, uh, 
slightly facetiously, but but it has to be. I truly believe I the I the advice I always give is like to hire someone better than you in every department. Yeah, you have to because yeah. then you're never gonna you're never gonna have the answers that they need. They're yes. gonna bring you the answers that yes. you need. So. For me, I met Kruda, David Kruda, a really good cinematographer. And then him and I had sort of been courting and we sort of hung out. We did the whole dating thing pre, pre to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he shot 12 cam. What did you guys shoot on? I'm just curious. Uh, Alexa. It was a mini. With anamorphics? Anamorphics. He's got these old school, uh, I think they're Koa anamorphics. He owns them? Yep. Yeah, dude. That's and hang on to that guy. Dude, they're, they're, um, they're uh, Kubrick lenses. That's the other advice, and I imagine we're probably very similar in this way, that mm-hmm. I, I just got asked the other day about um, some, some friends, actually in the coffee shop, some writers <laughs> that want to do a proof of concept, and I've done a number of them now, yeah. and I, I've gotten pretty good, I, I, I think anyway, at um, figuring out how to come into an idea and tell of a story that works narratively on its own while also setting up a universe, setting up or speaking to the possibilities of the universe. And it really comes down to very selective um, creative choices. Like as a world builder and and for me as a writer, like so much of the answers you give, you have to be careful what you're teaching the audience. You have to be very careful of what you're telling them because you're asking them to hold on to a lot of information. So don't ask questions that then create other questions that take them out of the movie. Yep. You know? So anyway, so I was, we were talking about this and I was kind of like, you know, they're getting my opinion on some things and they were talking about, they never directed and they were going to hire, going to hire a DP and there. And, and, um, the producer was asking me like, uh, should I, you know, what about DPs who own their own cameras? And I said, honestly, I said, I'd stay away. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. I said, but I do feel like a lot of, if a DP buys their own camera, uh, if they're not at a certain, well, again, this is a really broad statement, but like, I feel like I know a, a number of DPs who are okay. Uh, but similar to us trying to figure out as directors, like how do you market yourself? You buy a camera, you buy a camera. Now I come with a camera, but the reality is cameras are a massive, massive waste of money yeah. from an investment standpoint. They are obsolete after a few years, um, after a few months at this point, I, I'm not a fan of reds at all, which is what people tend to buy, no, I hate uh, which we could do probably an hour on that alone. I fucking hate those things. The image always looks thin. The way that they handle data is it, it, resolution in general is such a fallacy and such a marketing gimmick yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Uh, but you buy a camera and I come with a camera, et cetera. It's like, well, but the camera is not the real, the hard thing to get a hold of. But in what I told him, again, my fucking, this is why I need an editor, long-winded way of getting to the point, which is, if you can find a DP who owns glass, yes. now you're talking. Because that shit, find good lenses make or break an image. They can rent lenses out yep. as well. Like That's a better investment For than, sure. than a camera. For sure. And with him, when he told me he had the glass, that was like the, the cherry. Yeah. So for me, being a shooter and being this working for years as a as a as a dp was really smart because i got to see how other directors fuck up sure yeah and that, that's the ultimate is you want to see how the failures happen you know and you want to see what decisions were made incorrectly and why you were focused on this and you weren't focused on coverage and how a scene falls apart and all that kind of shit mm-hmm. and i i had worked with a few dps in the intro 
as a director and I would be in spaces where I saw that they were just shooting for the real and saw how that game works. Um, and so for me, I'm all about visual storytelling. Mm -hmm. That's why I picked movies. That's why I would have picked comic books as an illustrator. Mm -hmm. But for me, movies are visual medium, a hundred fucking percent. And I can tell you a story in another language without subtitles and you'll know that whole fucking movie mm -hmm. because of that language mm -hmm. that I love. And so when I hunted out Cruda, that was our conversation. We started to talk about what camera moves mean. We mm -hmm. started to talk about what lenses mean. We started to talk about the history of the language of cinema and how audiences perceive these things. Sure. And we started to build a toolbox. And then he was like, oh, and I have these lenses. And these lenses would be a great addition to our toolbox. And yeah. I was like, fuck yeah, we're in. Yeah. So him and I got along really fucking well. We shot this movie. Uh, we got along really fucking well. And when you finish watching 12 Cam, you'll see it's like, it's pretty intense. It's, you know, it's 1980s Russia yeah. shot outside of Boston. You know? Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge Cold War, like, not nut, but like, I did a big book on the end of the Cold War called The Dead Hand. And uh, you know, you know, way I'm, more than I'm, I do. I'm super, I'm super into it. Yeah. And anything that's like 80s Russia is like super fascinating. And it was me. just for me, it was so cool because it was like, look, I did it in Russian language for two reasons. One, I always hated it in movies when they just had actors with the with the accent. Right. I was I was the boss of this one, so fuck it. Two, um, I also didn't know how good my actors were going to be. Right. So I figured, well, if they're speaking another language, that's a the fantastic idea. Might just yes. do that. So I did that, um, and it was a long process, and I could tell you all about it. But we shot the movie. I was cutting the movie. I was editing the movie, mm -hmm. and Cruda uh, was up for a job. And so he's like, look, I'm up for this job. I'm up for a feature that's potentially a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Mm -hmm. And he's like, uh, can I get some footage? And I was like, sure. You know, cut together a quick thing, mm -hmm. sent him the footage. He got back to me and he's like, one of the writers and a producer of the movie uh, really loved the footage for the thing. And they're looking for a director. Can, would you mind talking to the writer? And I was like, sure. Uh, meanwhile, I'm like knee deep in right, cutting. Right. You know what I mean? So like, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Who gives a fuck? You know, I'll, I'll do a Skype. And so I get on the phone with this dude, Will, and he's like, look, uh, we'll put you in for this thing. It's really cool, uh, but I really love the short. You know, what are you going to do with the short? And mm -hmm. I was like, well, uh, I'm just going to finish it up. Maybe I'll do it to festivals and do this whole thing. And uh, he's, uh, he's like, do you have a feature written? I said, yeah. I, I went to this head injury, and we'll talk about it later. But mm -hmm. I wrote this feature in the head injury, and I, I write out of necessity. I don't write because I'm a writer. Same. Out of necessity. Same. So I wrote a feature that was pretty good. It was a modern day thing. And uh, he was like, I'd love to take a stab at doing a feature for this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, sure. You know, and he's like, here's my credentials. And he was a blacklist winner and he was all this mm -hmm. other shit. So I read one of his scripts, which was like Murder, Inc., I think. Um, and I was like, oh, this guy's better than me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is being a good director is understanding that. Sure. There yeah. you go. This guy likes the fucking art of screenplay writing. Mm -hmm. That's what he did. And he he was a director for a little while and then decided, I'm a screenplay writer. Right, right, right. Which is also nice because then you go, all right, so you know your lane. Right. I know my lane, right. you know your lane, which is really good. So then uh, he wrote uh, a pass on 12 Cam, which I really loved. We finished the short and then he was rep by Morley first. Oh, okay. So he was like, look, I'm going to talk to Morley and send him the stuff. Um and I have connections at Michael Bay's company. Platinum Dunes. Platinum Dunes. Mm -hmm. So would you like to go to Platinum Dunes? And of course I'm like, sure, fuck it. Yeah. So we come out and I had done the opposite with my short. 
I had learned my lesson after the Punisher piece and having that pulled down for me and how much people were interested in a movie that they couldn't see. Sure. So I was not going to release it to the public. Mm -hmm. And so I kept it very sort of secretive. And um, I had an article written on it. And an article got put out and I got calls from studios and everything based upon an article on a trailer. Yep. Um, and so that's how I got Where was it. the article at? It was on Twitch film. Okay. Twi- I had never Twitch heard of Film's Twitch film. Thing? I had never heard of it. <laughs> I had never heard of it. It was a friend of mine that was writing the article and uh, I had done another article with a big place. And I was like, this is going to be the one. You know what? That's actually not that surprising now that I think about it because- so much of the the so many of the shorts that are found are actually found by assistants. Yep. And assistants are younger than us. Yep. And they're way hipper. Yep. And they're into <laughs> all of this the streaming content and Twitch and oh, Let's yeah. Play and and YouTube and that whole world that I had no idea. Yeah, same. Yeah. I had no idea. So I started That's getting awesome. I I got emails, I got calls, and I was like, what the fuck is this from? Mm-hmm. And then uh Came out, and that's how I got my management. Came out, spent a week, I yep. pitched to them, and then we ended up pitching the movie all over the place. Yep. So that's how I found Will. And so then Will and I worked really well together on the script, and we have a really good process where um, we'll brainstorm a fuckload. And so we go through the process of coming up with ideas on our own. We'll get on the phone two or three times a week. Mm-hmm. Even now that I live out here, we're on the phone more. Oh, wow. Um, we get on where the does phone. he live? He's out here. He's in uh, West Hollywood. Oh, okay. So... <clears throat> we get on the phone, we, we process ideas and then I'll work with him on all of the structure. So it'd be like, this is what I think and this is what I would love and this mm-hmm. is what I would like to see and then we go back and forth and then he writes it. Oh, and I'm so jealous. That sounds so great. Dude, it's, it's <laughs> fucking fantastic. That sounds so great. <laughs> we've done it three, we've done it twice. We did for Who's There and for 12 Cam and we're about to do it again for the third time. And I, honestly, I, I will work with other writers. He works with other directors. I would love to find other people that are right. working on stuff. Um, but it's just nice. I have a great relationship with him. I have a good relationship with my DP. And it's just this slow build where like I'm doing the same thing, trying to find a good production designer out here. I right. have one in East Coast that I love. Right. Um, I don't know, man. It's, it's weird. I, I, I just think that I know that there are people that are better at it than me. Mm-hmm. And one thing that he was better at as a writer than I was is he knows how to tee it up. He'll spend all In his what time. what way? What do you mean? When he sends it to the, when he sends drafts. Oh, sure. So yeah. like he knows how to tee it up right. So like we'll, we're doing uh, rewrites right now for a big production company and he knows how to write the email. Yeah, I have a friend. Um, yeah, my, actually the guy I was, I was mentioning, Harrison, uh, he and I are working on a few things right now and I've learned quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's younger than me too, which kills me. Um, <laughs> Dude, in this business, by like a decent it? amount actually. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not that old. Um, but, uh, he's very, very savvy and very like speaks, speaks exact language when he has to, yeah. you know, and he could not be further from that as a writer and a person, but he knows, he knows how to sell the sizzle, um, mm-hmm. which is very important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a wild thing, man. I've, I've been learning that we all have our skills. Yeah. And uh, if you're lucky enough to be, honestly, if you could just last long enough. Like if you're, if you're lucky enough to be in that position where um, you can finally do your skill. And, and I just try not to be insecure because Will's skills are so good at the front. 
Sure. They always talk, it's like a relay race. So he does all the fucking hard work now. Where right. he'll do a spec or he'll write and he'll do all that shit. And I'm just like, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. It's like, put me in, coach, put me in, coach, put me in, coach. And does he think, from his perspective, I don't know if you know this or not, but like, does he find that writing the script with you attached has value for him? Yes. Because that's the other, that's when we were talking before about like playing the lotto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, you can say, I mean, look, directors are what get movies made. Um, you know, I, I heard Chris McQuarrie talk one time where he's like, you might say actors get movies made and you're not wrong, but the thing is... If you're a director, you, you but, know that. But what's, but what's the first question the actor has is who's, who's directing. directing. So directors are ultimately what get yeah. movies made. But even that statement's a little misleading because it's really only like eight directors sure. that get movies made. Sure. Right? Uh, particularly at that, the scale that we're probably all exactly. talking about or wanting. You start getting over $2 million at. that you yes. in that game. So on the one hand, I wonder what goes through my head is like, well having not done a feature before and and I'm in the same boat, like is there value there for a writer to partner with a director who hasn't done a feature because do they have any heat? Do they, are they bringing any juice kind of to the, to the table? That metaphor made no sense. Um, I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Heat juice. (laughs) Heat juice. Yeah. But on the flip side, (laughs) if you just write a script and you're putting it, it's got no one into the ether. No one's attached to it. There's no, Yeah. But your reps will always tell you, as a writer, a lot of times they'll tell you, like, you want the script unencumbered and let's see if we can go out with it and create kind of a bidding war type situation. Dude, he's still doing that. He just got, I think it was released, so I'm allowed to talk about it. He just wrote um, the uh, new version of Internal Affairs. So for Paramount, so he got it's awesome, big fucking. What's his job. last name? Will Simmons. Will Simmons. Okay, he got a big word. I wonder job. if I know him. Actually. You might, dude. especially if he's in West Hollywood. Um, you might. I'm gonna look him up. Um, Let's see, but uh, yeah, no. So he writes independently to me, and so he'll do stuff on all these other projects. I think he sees us, um, and I'm speaking for him, but I, I w- would say that he sees us as like this investment. Mm-hmm. The same way that you know my agents and my management see me because they're not making a fucking dime off my. Which ass right Will Simmons? I'm on IMTV. Was he was he an actor in Boy Squad? No, he's just was a, he an actor in Only the Strong Wasteland Wanderer? No, <laughs> is he the is he the writer of Daymen? Is he the writer of Daymen? What I think it's like Will underscore Simmons. <laughs> I'm doing this on air, and he's gonna fucking. No, I love this. He's gonna give me. Don't shit. Don't cut this. He's gonna give me. Is shit. this him? No. No, he did um, Murder Murder City, I think, and he also did... Um, One L or two? Two. Will. Will Simmons. S-I-M-M-O-N-S? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I found him. Hold there on. it is. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, no he's photo. got... photo. I was looking for photo. photo. Oh, he's he's an attractive bro. Is he? <laughs> I hate him already. He's a tra- he's an attractive bro who's a talented writer. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's he's a creative bro. <laughs> I'll say that out here. I'll get shit from him, but he's he's wonderful, man. Like uh, the two of us, we're both really dark to our detriment. Actually, we're mm-hmm. both very dark writers. So you're a horror guy, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. See, I hate horror. 
That's it's actually been like I feel like sometimes I wonder if my career. Well, be you know, along. but hard. But no, no, no. You can't say because you wrote Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall to me is suspense sci-fi, and that's yeah. That's more what it is. I'm not a. I'm not. Um, I'm not Evil Dead. You know what I mean? For me, it's like right. top movies thing. So it's the thing, Alien, Shining, you know that kind of shit. So it's sure. more more suspense. It's not. It's not cool. Yeah, what are your, give me, what are, like, I like, I always like to ask the question, not what are your favorite movies. Sure. But what are, give me like four, well, you actually already did, but I, we'll see if it changes now. Yeah. This is what's part, part of what's fun about the question. In this moment, mm-hmm. with the caveat being that it could change an hour from now, tomorrow, whatever, I feel like so much of what we ascribe our, or, or think our, or say our favorite movies are, actually, it's all dependent on like, kind of like, recency bias or like what we've been thinking about or things like that yeah so like what are what are four movies for you that are significant well the ones that never change uh the thing never changes that was mm-hmm. always there probably because i have some shit to get out for that um <laughs> alien and blade runner are sort of at the same they they flip depending upon what i'm working on mm-hmm. um but like right now Shit, man! I just watched Black Rain the other day, and I fucking love that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing an aesthetic uh, kind of uh, yeah. uh, through line here. <laughs> uh, and then the fourth one, um, man, Ghostbusters probably. Love Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters probably. Ghostbusters. It's interesting because Ghostbusters is the only. I haven't seen Black Rain in forever. Ever. I just watched it the other day. I should rewatch it. I have it. Um, but to me, Ghost of the other ones, especially like Alien, Blade Runner. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What was the first one? So the thing. The thing, and Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is kind of weirdly like the strongest narrative of those. Um, I don't. I'm not. A, I love Blade Runner, but like you know. I'm not watching Blade Runner for the plot. <laughs> no, no, dude. I, I mean, and all right, I'll say this too. I think that there are different ways to watch films, the same way that yeah. there are different ways to watch a comic or mm-hmm. read comics or look at art. And I think that there is a lot of really great uh, films out there that are like a painting. You look at like Nicholas Refn's shit, you know? If oh, you yeah, they're like the, tone poems. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Sure. And that's what I love about that medium is that it doesn't have to be this. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that there's so much content out there right now Mm -hmm. and there's so much of a formula that you have to follow where if you are doing an hour and a half long movie it's almost like doing a rock song where it's just like here we go here's the guitar solo here's the fucking and so when you start when you watch enough of that shit you're just like i know exactly what this fucking movie is gonna be yeah yeah it's it's interesting you say that um because i just saw i mean narrative is king and queen for me like narrative is the end all be all more important than anything else. Um, and it's, you know, at the same time though, like if you look at the stuff that I've shot, it's all very moody and it's very, you know, um, you know, a lot of precision camera work. It's all very, it's, it's, it's of a, I, I would say like we very much pride ourselves, the people I work with, like it's all at a very kind of high production sure. value. Right. Sure. And yet, ultimately, like it's that stuff. 
I really like it and I respond to it and I, I, and I'm obviously a very, you know, visual person, especially working in comics. But at the end of the day, like I can't watch something if the, if the narrative doesn't work for me, if the story makes sense and things. And, and I say that because I, you know, I mean, I write every day. I mean, that's when you, when we were saying before, when you're saying like you write out of necessity, I'm the same way. It's just my necessity is, you know, it's the only way I can pay my rent <laughs> right now. You know, I get my best ideas when my, you know, like a week before rent is due, you know? Um, but I just, so like I'll watch a movie and I can see the moves, you know? And yet when they're done, even if it's formula, when it's done really well, then it's like, juicy. Yeah. I completely, it, it completely washes over me. Like I just saw, I mean, I saw a bunch of, I, this year has been killer for movies. There have been a, like there have been like four or five that I've seen in a row that I love. Which ones? Um, Uncut Gems. I haven't seen that yet. I want to. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. And I was lukewarm on Good Time. I liked Good Time. I respect the hell out of it. But ultimately, narratively, Good Time is very yeah. like it's one night and it's you know case of mistaken kind of identities in a certain way without giving too much away for anyone who hasn't seen it. But Uncut Gems is one of the tensest movies I've ever seen. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. yeah. So there's Uncut Gems. Um, loved Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, Peanut Butter Falcon blew me away. I haven't seen that yet. And But my favorite of the year, and I haven't seen Honey Boy yet, but my favorite is Jojo Rabbit. Oh, that's on my list too. Holy fuck. Yeah. I cannot believe... I love Taika. I, I love cannot him. believe the tone that they walk with it. And again, there are moves in it where if you're looking to break it down, it probably breaks quite well into eight sequences, mm. you know? Mm. I didn't care. Like I'm watching it and I didn't know where it was going. And they execute something and I don't want to even hint at what it is because I want you to just experience it. But you want to talk about visual directing in a story that you could get away with just on the characters and the story alone. There are some visual flourishes in the movie um, and they, they do something, they set something up so exceptionally well that when they pay it off and it's purely just an image, you, you gasp. I mean, it's just remarkable. I'm into it. I'm yeah. totally into it. What did I see this year? Lighthouse I liked. Did you see Lighthouse? I haven't seen it, no. That was great. There's another one. I don't know. I just did the move this year too, so it was tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I got to go back to it. The thing, I guess what I try to explain, which I don't do a good job explaining, is that I feel like to, in order to be a good visualist, mm -hmm. in order to be someone that understands the language of cinema, it takes time. It takes a lot of fucking time. A lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of practice, a mm -hmm. lot of that. And I feel like with content being having to put out, they have to put it out so fucking radically and right. so quick right now that they just hire DPs. And I've had people on the show where they hire a DP and a good assistant director and they get someone in that's like, I have an idea or I'm the fucking you know, nephew of the producer <laughs> right. or whoever the fuck it is. And so then they come in, they talk to the actors on set, they kind of do stuff, they hire a good concept writer. It's like any Marvel movie that you watch right now where you're like, or even fucking Star Wars where you're like, holy shit, that looks amazing. That's the fucking concept artist. It's like mm -hmm. concept artist, concept artist, concept artist, recreate this, go for it. Right. And then the director isn't really, unless you're like James Gunn, the director really isn't 
creating a fucking personal tone. There isn't there isn't a tone right. for that. So well, sure. those Marvel movies in particular are all by necessity, they're all so visually similar. I mean, they're all kind of a step away from Maddie Lee Boutique's Iron Man, you know, because you I, want them all to play nice together. I, I get it. But I, it's not, I, I'm the same way. I'm not, I don't. I mean, but James Gunn was able to fucking pull it off. Yeah. And and so he was able to play in that world and still build a tone. And I don't think it's just like what lenses you're choosing and all that kind of shit. I think it's just, um, it's be, I, the only way I can describe it is it has a smell. Strangely. Yeah. It has this smell. And any movie, like when I talk Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters is a flawed fucking movie. Like the the visual effects in it, they put them out on first pass. Oh, they do multiple yeah. passes of it. All that stuff. It's a flawed fucking movie. But I go back and I rewatch these movies because I like the tone. I like the yeah. world that's in. And there are so many great movies. Like we just watched um, A Marriage Story or whatever the new Scarlett Johansson one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it? Great movie, but fucking goddamn. I you went through some hard breakups. I can't watch it for that reason. I just can't. It's like, especially because I'm rewriting Hadrian's Wall right now. Oh. And I'm like, I need to not Jesus Christ. do this. <laughs> Jesus. And like I tell my girlfriend all the time, because she's like, we're going to watch this stuff. And I'm like, this is like, this is like someone just stepping on my dick for like 40 minutes. I'm going to need like a bottle of bourbon and a box of bullets oh. to like get through it. Oh. And the tone is so perfect yeah. in that movie. But yeah, it's you, Bombach, right? No, Bombach. Yeah. And yeah. you walk out, you finish it and you're just like fuck I, like I was in the shower and I'm just like I love you I love you and they're just walking around going I'm not that piece of shit because you're so involved uh, with what's happening with it right. um, great tone not something that I'd rewatch and there's a lot of really great movies that have really fantastic stories but not something that I want to live in not something that I want to rewatch right. because the, they're just destructive to me and I, I want to make this is why I'm working with other writers I want to make uh, movies that have great stories. I want to have a really good narrative through my films. I want to have really good characters in my films and identifiable characters in my films. Mm-hmm. But I want my job, ultimately, to be creating a tone for that stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's why I love directing, is is how can I take a great story? Like, I already know what I do with Hadrian as well. Mm-hmm. How do I take a great story and make it into this environment, make it into this world that you literally would want 10 years from now to be like, I wish that I could see how they got the Terminator. Or I wish I could see how they did this. It's because of the tone of those movies. Like the first Terminator movie, the future in that first fucking movie. Mm-hmm. How long was it on the screen? Five right. minutes, four minutes. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, fuck. Well, I mean, every, every movie that you just referenced there has another thing in common, which is that a lot of those visuals and a lot of those, um, those effects gags are, all practical. I love that shit. Uh, I do too. I'm a. I can quote the entire 1990 Ninja Turtles movie, like <laughs> off the cuff. And so much of what I love about that movie, and revisit by the way, um, is the Henson suits. You know, the animatronic suits mm-hmm. are so significant for me. And we don't. You know, the idea that I mean, look, it's a total testament to the artistry and the technology that we've gotten to the point where they can do entire sequences in a Spider-Man movie that are full CG, photoreal CG. Um, they can create costumes. They recreate, they basically build every Marvel character's costume CG. and replace it in yeah. CG. Yeah. Like that's amazing. Um, 
there's something that gets lost in it for me. And it's weird for me to say that considering, you know, I write a lot of these characters. I just wrote a big Winter Soldier series, you know, like, yeah, yeah. like for a living. And I love them. Um, and I enjoy the movies when I see them, you know. Yeah. But um, there's something. You know what I think it is? This is what I. Okay. So you haven't finished 12 Cam. Mm-hmm. But in 12 Cam, I needed to work with this, this fluid. And so uh, I could have CG'd it. Mm-hmm. But I did the research and I found a uh, fair fluid, found a fluid that I could puppeteer. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole puppeteering thing. So everything fluid? you would. Yeah. Oh, cool. So everything you watch in that movie is all done. So none of it's CG. Is this like the rat in the abyss type shit or? <laughs> no. no. Oh, okay. So uh, we, uh, I ended up teaming up with this uh, microbiologist and I was like, I want to go down to a microscopic level and be able to create sets at a microscopic level and puppeteer stuff on mm-hmm. that level oh, and, wow. and show how it's affecting people because it's a mm-hmm. cerebral movie. How does this affect it? And so uh, someone was like, well, why don't you just CG it? Well, one thing I learned as a cinematographer is that most of my best shots were accidental. <laughs> always. Always. You'd be setting something up and you'd tell a gaffer to do something. He'd move a light and you'd be you looking cool at the monitor and you're like, uh, stop, go back. to." And you can't do that in CG. In CG, you have like meetings with your fucking supervisor and you have all that sort of shit and everybody sort of sits down and they go, what is your genius fucking thought? And right. being someone that's like, how do I process Spider-Man fighting the vulture on a fucking airplane? And you're like, can I just sit in a room with some concept artists, please? Right. And then you're relying on an artist to find something that you can then choose from and go this and this and this. And I think the thing that's great about practical stuff is that it leaves it open to the lens, to the light, to accidents. Mm-hmm. And so while you're shooting, like one of the best shots in 12 cam was when I was, uh, you know, adjusting my tripod and I did a fucking pan and I was like, holy shit, and did that. Have you gotten into any of this um, kind of emerging technology? I, I mean, look, they, they, they're making a big kind of splash with it on The Mandalorian, but I've known about it for, I feel yeah. like it's been around for like a year or two. Where yeah, you're screens. using, yeah, we're using the the LCD like AR walls essentially, mm-hmm. and the digital camera in Unreal is slaved to the practical camera on set. You know, it has a certain look to it unto itself, but I'm like super fascinated by it. I like the fact that it, like it's affecting. I like the digital wall stuff affecting the lighting. I like yes. it being able to affect the actors and the actors are able to see it like um, Ad Astra, not Ad Astra, the other Oblivion. one. Oblivion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all that stuff is really interesting to me. And th- I'm never against new technology for that stuff as long as I feel like at the end of the day, I look at filmmaking like cooking. As long as I can put my hands on the ingredients, as mm-hmm. long as I can sit there and play and taste and mess with it, then I'm fine with it. Right. As soon as there's like 40 fucking crew people between me and it, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, here are my notes. And it's an email exchange where you're like, can I have the cape flow a little bit weird? And I have to go through an email structure to hear <laughs> that fucking response. I don't want that shit. Like, I'd rather just be in that place. And you look at all the movies that I love, which is the movies from the 70s. You go back and you look at that stuff and the size of the crew on those movies. And it's like, what, 30 people? And you're like, these people are making the movies that the movies today are ripping off. Mm-hmm. And like you go back and you look at Kurosawa movies. Like my big thing these days is uh, I want extras and blocking with lots of extras in real life extras. Yeah. I mean, I noticed in the in the five minutes of 
uh, 12 cam that I've seen so far. <laughs> uh, you have a pretty ridiculous steady cam shot Thanks. in the opening. It was and, necessary. Yeah, but the biggest thing I noticed in it in a in a really positive way was the choreography. Uh, and I'm only noticing it because I'm looking for it as I'm kind of like studying sure. shots, you know. It's done so well. Thanks. Uh, and the organization and the choreography of the extras is like very fluid and very naturalistic. And like, I love that shit. I mean, I remember we probably started, I think I'm a few years younger than you, but we probably started around the same time. And coming up with like, you know, in the early 2000s with like mini DV cameras and shit like that. Like, Hell yeah. Yep. What was, we'll, we'll see if we're on the same wavelength. What was the quickest way or the, or the, 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 the best kind of camera hack for production value? That you could do off a of stock like an XL1? You had an XL1. Well, an XL1 is probably not a good example because you could do this um, with, well, I, I mean, I'll just, I guess I'll just say it because this could be a rabbit hole. Sure. Um, so many cameras that you're shooting on before an XL1, you're shooting with a fixed lens or yep. zoom yep. and everything's wide and everything's in focus. Mm -hmm. And so I know like when I was in high school, like trying to figure out how to get shallow depth of field for close-ups, like that was the quickest way to separate sell. yourself. Yeah. yeah. And sell production value because no one else could kind of do that unless you were working off like an XL1 or like ultimately an XL2. And so, like, I remember making a film in college where we were shooting on uh, an HVX, the Panasonic HVX, that, like, the solid state yep. uh, fucking flash card. Was that? No, P2, the P2 card system. That's right. It was P2. <laughs> uh, and we, we got a hold of one of those red rock, yep. uh, you know what I'm talking lens about? Lens adapters. Lens adapters with the spinning ground glass. And it has the pits in the glass, and sometimes you would not spin it. You'd yep. be like, fuck. And so you spin it up. And the camera is actually filming the spinning ground glass. And on the other side of the ground glass, you're mounting um, still lenses yep. on it. My dad's a photographer. He's been shooting Nikon since Vietnam. So, like, I had all these still lenses that I had access to. And it was, like, you know, I, long lens, close up, shallow yep. depth of field. Like, all of a sudden, you're like, holy shit. Like, this looks was, like a movie. The thing was, like, five feet fucking Oh, my long. God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I started shooting... Shadow Hours, my DP, who was also my roommate for like eight years and was like my brother, is amazing, Michael Nye. Um, he commented to me while we were shooting, because I hadn't shot in a couple years, and he was going, you know, you're shooting, you're shooting this movie like pretty tight, you know? And I'm going like, well, well yeah, like I love a good close-up. And, and from comics, like a lot of the kind of bold like smash cutting yeah. and pre-lap dialogue and things like that, I was actually, I was consciously trying to do here because I didn't, see it in live action as much as in comics i got yeah. really good at it yeah yeah and i got into the cutting room and i realized oh he's totally right and it's actually not shallowed up the field that sells production value it's wide shots because mm -hmm. they're really hard to do and they're very expensive and they're very expensive yeah very expensive yeah that's like when you're doing like indie indie shit that would be the first thing i'd look and say who's the production designer how much money are you spending on a on wardrobe yep and they were like, well, we're going to blow all our money on the camera. I'm like, fucking great. Well, might as well get long lenses because right. there's nothing to fucking film here. Yeah. And it doesn't matter how good I am as a guy that can light. There's nothing to fucking shoot. You yeah. Know? I mean, so, yeah, I, I've, I've had production designers that I've been you know, close with. I've watched over the years yeah. where they will build 
design and build the most spectacular set yeah. and then watch as a commercial DP comes in and fucking lights everything and just butchers it. Yeah. And it's like, and yeah. it's the, that's the flip side of that same exact dynamic where it's like, you put all this money into building these sets mm-hmm. and if you don't have a DP who knows how to light, um, it's all for naught. It drives me crazy, man. And that's the, that's the art. For me, when I gave up being a comic book artist, and for me, when I gave up going down that road, I just studied really hard. Not only how to direct, not only how to deal with actors, but also how to deal with crew and how to mm-hmm. process all that stuff. And how to like, dude, I spent a fucking year just processing how to deal with clients. Right. And how to deal with the people that are sitting around the monitor while right. you're fucking doing your thing, right. which is a big part of directing. So... I want to go back to something real quick, actually, sure. um, from earlier, because uh, we kind of touched on it, and I forgot, because I've never seen it, but I, I forgot you did a, the Punisher fandom. Yes. Yeah. What is your What is your kind of opinion, position on fan films as, um, not necessarily a genre, but as a potential means to, um, exp- like, getting your work out there because I, I have some thoughts on it but I'm really curious what what you think as someone who made one as well and yeah. obviously what happened to it yeah I mean what I mean the, the the only benefit about the Punisher short that I did was that it never came out mm-hmm. so like if it had come out it would have never got the attention it was the fact that my lawyer at the time was like you should write an article about everything you did and how you can't put it out and me doing that created more of a buzz it created a narrative about you as exactly. a filmmaker exactly mm-hmm. more than the film did um I initially wanted to do it because, look, when I asked you earlier if you were afraid to direct, Mm -hmm. I asked that question because I think that was my issue. And I think that I spent years losing myself in in the art of it and the technique of it and being like, hey, look, I'll direct music videos because I'll learn how to do a feature from the music videos. Or I'll direct commercials because I'll learn how to deal with talent. Or I'll learn how to deal with agency people. And so I spent, you know, fuck, 13 years doing that shit Mm -hmm. and that whole period of time wasn't until the head injury that I was like I got a story I got a narrative I got something I want to say but also I felt like I had I had to do 12km and go through the misery of making that movie and being on that set and going this is the hardest it's ever going to be and I fucking conquered this Mm -hmm. so I'm ready I can go direct and I can go to Hollywood and do all that stuff and so for me deciding to do a fan film was the easy way out I was sort of looking at it going like, I was reading uh, uh, Greg Rucka's run of Punisher. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's great. Yeah. Fucking love that run. And uh, I was doing a music video at the same time and I had a torture scene in the music video a la like, you know, Lethal Weapon 2 guy in a bucket, electrocuting him, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally on set watching the whole thing get set up and I'm, I have the comic with me and I'm like, why are we not doing this? Why are we not doing this as a, as a thing? And I had the whole crew and I'm like, let's put it together and we'll do it. And it wasn't my story. It wasn't my shit. So I really wasn't, there wasn't a, a, an insane emotional commitment to it. It was like, I'll do this. I'll do it really well. I'll have fun with this. And I'd love to do comic book movies. So this would be something fun to do. Mm-hmm. And so we went through the process of making it. And it wasn't until I did 12KM, which I had a personal connection to, and I was emotionally involved and I spent more money on it. But that movie got me in the room with Michael Bay. That movie got me in the room with all these fucking people. And I will talk to my agents and management and go, hey, you know, with all the comic book shit that's going on, I have a rabid fan base of people that want to see this Punisher movie that they can't see. 
you know, maybe I can roll that into directing an episode of The Fucking Punisher when it was on TV. Nope. Nope. There was a point when... And, f- and do you know why? Or I'm sure you do, but like what in, what in your opinion is why? Uh, because I'm not in that club. I think that, I think ultimately if you and I, let, let's say we broke down and we're like, hey, we're going to make something and we, mm-hmm. we right now have formed this connection and it takes us five, six years to get to that point. Mm-hmm. We'll have people coming to us from the outside saying I, like, hey, I'd love to do this. And you're just like, yeah, but I got here and I'm, I'm trying to make this happen. So chill yes, I, I would, I would add one more <coughs> angle on it. And I say this as someone who has done quite a bit of work for DC and for oh, Marvel. Okay. And for on Power Rangers, which also has a large fandom, um, ultimately, what people don't talk about a lot is who is overseeing these projects. Mm-hmm. Okay, the official stuff. No one wants to feel like or be made to feel like um, they are obsolete mm-hmm. or not necessary. Right. So if you go and you make a fan film, what you're essentially saying is, hey, I know how to do this. I know how to do the thing that you're trying to do, and I think I can do it better than the way that you can put the project together. Smart. And so what happens is if they were to hire you, it's a form of admission. That they're not needed. That they're not needed. And or their take, their idea on it, is not necessary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're never going to hire someone who has shown to actually do the thing that you're trying to do. Yeah. You're going to hire someone who can demonstrate the same kind of uh, tonal flexibility or genre, etc. because everyone no one wants to be force-fed anything. Everyone it's 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 that old saying of like you can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink. Mm-hmm. Like I want to see a director who can demonstrate action and maybe even secret identity stuff. If I'm trying to put together a Spider-Man movie, right? Mm -hmm. I ain't going to hire somebody who directed a Spider-Man short. It's too much of a one-to-one. And we see this in comics all the time. Fascinating. Okay. Especially with writers. No one's going to read your comic book script. They're just not. It's not going to happen. They will barely read your comic, right? Because when you're actually making the stuff, you're in it, you're inundated, you're like the last thing you want to do in your free time when you go home is go read more comics. Right. Most most people. Right. right. Um, that said, reading a finished comic is what separates the women from the girls, the men from the boys. If you were able to create an actual book and have it even self-published, you're already demonstrating that you're operating at a level above. Most fans, quote unquote, right? Because we're all fans. Like, of course. Right? Of course. Um, but the number of people that have come to me over the years going like, hey, I have this idea for a Batman comic. Or I wrote, I had, a, I had someone come up to me uh, at a convention one time when I was writing Nightwing. And they said, hey, do you remember that character from Nightwing, you know, 20 years ago? And because he's my, all, normally I would have no idea, right? But because he's my all-time favorite character, I knew actually who this person was talking about. I was like, I think so. Was it, you know, so-and-so from when they're like, yeah, it's an obscure like side character. And this person said, well, I have a great way to bring them back for the new 52. And he puts down a full binder in front of me. And he goes, and I wrote all six issues and here they are. 
And I was like, well, I can't look at this for legal reasons. And he's like, well, well but why? Because, yeah. Because. And he, this kept going, this conversation kept going, kept going, kept going. And basically what I said to him finally was like, well, if you really want to boil it down, what you're asking me for right now is for me to put you in touch with people so you can take my job. Like if you really want to boil it down, right? Because that, yep. that's not ultimately, like that's not the, the full, like that's being very reductive, I know. But this conversation had gone on for like 15, 20 minutes where we're talking about the ins and outs and how to work up your own stuff, et cetera, right? Sure. And I said, when you're, when you're writing characters, when you're writing material that is not your own world, your own IP, what you're essentially saying is, hey, compare me to, at that time, it would be Scott Snyder. Mm -hmm. He's running Batman. Are you writing at the same level as Scott? Because what you're doing by writing a script that you are trying to use to get a job on that actual brand is you're inviting the comparison mm. and you're giving a basically a list of what like a direct comparison as opposed to if you were to go take that same story and create a Batman analog, right? Or a new superhero that isn't just a Batman analog and basically build out that story and your own universe, your own world, what you're essentially saying, what you're what now you're 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 actually making it more likely that you could get hired for the thing that you really want to do mm. because you're not trying to you know, force a horse to drink. Interesting. You're, you're putting out breadcrumbs and you're letting a smart editor go like, oh, I actually think this person would be really good on Batman, right? Yeah, 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 it, yeah. it applies across mediums. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and in live action as well. And so that's that's always been my thing with with fan films is like, that's great. Take your passion and take your love of that character, create a new character. Yeah. And now not only are you demonstrating your abilities on a very similar character to the one that you really want to try to get the job for, but you're also not creating a legal obstacle. Um, you're not creating, uh, or I'm sorry, a legal hurdle potentially for you to even be talked to, right? Yeah, for sure. And you're also demonstrating um, originality and, and the potential of being a world builder, right? Mm -hmm. Smart, dude. That's smart. That's actually the best way to put it. I mean, we've talked about it a bunch on the show, and, and honestly, that makes the most sense. It really does, you know? Because at the end of the day, you're right. You're going to walk into a space like you where it's just like, I want your job. Essentially, that's what's going on, you know? And I witnessed that with the Punisher because they wrote to the guys doing the TV series and the guy was like, I don't know who he is. I had fans writing. I don't know who he is and I don't want to know who he is. And it's just like, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's, you know? it's funny. I get tagged a lot on social media, especially in the last couple of days, by fans saying, telling, going like, Hasbro, you should get Kyle Higgins to write the Power Rangers screenplay, you know? And it's like, I don't engage with any of that. Uh, that's not the reality. That's not how it works. No. You know, you have to demonstrate, uh, you have to demonstrate your capabilities in my case, in, in this instance, at least you have to demonstrate your capabilities in that medium and be successful in that medium Yeah. in order to be, you know, attractive as a hire. The mm -hmm. one exception recently that comes to mind though, would be Tom King who just wrote the New Gods movie with Ava DuVernay. So Ava is doing New Gods, and she's looking around going like, 
I don't, I assume, I don't know, have insider knowledge on this or anything, but she's going like, well, who's really good with this lore? And Tom is writing this amazing comic book series, Mr. Miracle. And he's also one of the top, you know, names in the industry right now. He's won all these Eisners and everything else. And so Ava reached out and was like, hey, can, why don't you write this with me? Now, Ava has the juice that yeah. she can actually pull that off, you know? Sure. Um, that's the only time I've really seen that happen hmm. where a comics writer actually gets approached to um, adapt for an, a, you know, a character that isn't their own creation yeah. uh, for you know, a much larger uh, platform for a different medium. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then it comes back to the end of the, you know, it's all politics and it's all ego and, and, and you're processing all that stuff, which is fascinating, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, I had... I have a friend, um, uh, I gotta be careful how I word this. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I have a friend who's prominent in a particular, uh, area of filmmaking and is very successful in certain, you know, in, in this Avenue and for years wasn't getting the type of work that they probably should and definitely their talent you know, should afford yeah. and started to realize after, you know, they changed representation at a certain point, by the way, representation is not always the, the answer here, but I'm in this case. And this rep was explaining to my friends like, Oh, that job you thought you were up for Like you weren't even on the list. <laughs> so then it becomes a question of like, well, how do you get on the list? Well, that is politics and that is relationships. Yeah. That's a that's why one of the big reasons I came out. Yeah. It's just hanging out with folks mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, and then meeting those people and then them knowing who you are and then five years from now and then they go, hey, remember that guy that fucking blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And that's how it all happens. That's the luck, I think. Right. You know? Well, Macquarie had, I, I recommend anyone listening to this podcast, if you don't follow Chris McQuarrie on uh, on Twitter, uh, highly recommend it. As much as I hate Twitter, <laughs> he's worth uh, he's worth you know being on the platform for. I guess um, he had this whole like twenty four tweet thread a few weeks ago, breaking down as a writer from a writer's perspective. Like he was getting asked a lot, like how do I get my script made? And he goes, "You're in my opinion, you're asking the wrong question." And he described. There's a podcast he did in 2007 that I listened to like every year or two. Okay. And it's a three-hour podcast, an interview he did with Jeff Goldsmith. Um, and Jeff just re-ran it under his new podcast banner, the Q&A. And it was after uh, Valkyrie came out. And Chris goes through this whole his whole history and the story of uh, writing The Usual Suspects. First of all, he's an amazing storyteller and a raconteur like verbally like so it's just super engaging to listen to yeah but he goes through writing the usual suspects and winning the oscar and then his career taking a massive dump oh wow and spending like seven or eight maybe longer years going like how do i get my script to so-and-so and how do i get so-and-so to read my whatever how do i how do i how do i how do i and instead the focus that he found he should have had was um, just making the stuff. Like he got away from making, telling stories and making movies in terms, and, and was trying to figure out how to make 
movies, which sounds a little, I know that sounds a little fish, like a little counterintuitive. No, it's, it's, it's you're completely on point because I know exactly what that is. His whole thing was about start thinking of yourself as a brand and you're trying to make your skills desirable and acquirable. So you want people to want to hire you. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's about demonstrating your capabilities, but it's also about figuring out a way to go make stuff. Yeah. You know? And for writers, uh, that's that's where the line I, I pulled the line from like you're playing the lottery. Like if you write a script and you're gonna and you're submitting it around town and you know, it, it, you're playing the lottery. You shouldn't stop playing the lottery. Sure. But like the lottery shouldn't be your only uh, means to try to pay your rent. And that comes back you know? to Will. I think that's part of the reason why Will and I work well. Yeah, and that's why I, that's why yeah. I was asking. Yeah. Because he knows. Because he hit me when we did. Uh, who's there? Uh, it's a fascinating story with that. We ended up writing Who's There because we were going around and pitching 12KM. Mm-hmm. And I was going into a lot of places that I wanted to work, you know, in a lot of like genre producers. And I remember I walked into one genre producer and I was looking around at all this stuff and him and I got along really fucking well. He's from mm-hmm. Boston. I'm from Boston, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, someday we'll work together. And I'm just sort of looking at it. And I'm like, what is, you have a fucking formula. <laughs> so like, what is your- and you're like, why not now? Why not today? Yeah, but but- what I tried to do was like, what is your fucking formula? Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, here's what we do. We need a specific movie about a specific thing. So it has to be about an item or a thing that we could put on a poster and we can do all that stuff. So he gave me the rundown of how it plays out. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, fascinating. Okay. So then I went home and uh, called up Will and I was like, dude, what if we just do an exercise? I know this isn't how we do it, but like, what if we just play around for a couple of days and we're like, look, let's play within the rule construct of what these guys do. Mm-hmm. And can we come up with something interesting? And that's how we came up with who's there. Mm-hmm. The music box and all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. We, we played around in that for a while. Uh, and then the irony is, is I went back into that fucking guy's office and I sold him everything that fits into his fucking thing. And he was like, ah, we don't need something like this right now. And yeah. I'm just like, God yeah. damn, what the fuck? But, yeah. but what Will was able to do is that I said to him, like, this is what we want to do. We came up with a treatment, came up with an idea. And then I fucking produced the short in 20 days. Wow. And then had it edited in a month and a half mm-hmm. and at that level. So for him, he was like, as a writer, I think it's useful to partner up with good filmmakers that are, you know, there's a lot of Rodriguez, you know what I mean? You mm-hmm. want to find those filmmakers that are the the ones that get shit done. Yes, absolutely. That aren't egomaniacs, that aren't in that game of like, this all needs to be perfect and what's my fucking life? It's just like, all right, how do we do this? And you wrote this thing being this big, but let's do it like this and let's right. boom, 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 And I think that's the benefit of being a writer uh, I, it's gonna suck. At least for me, I can just grab a camera and write some shit down. <laughs> well, I mean, that's and why then bang yeah. it out. You know what I mean? But I mean, yeah, and that's why I, I guess I always thought of myself because you started as a director before you were a writer, so you could do the same kind of thing, right? Yeah, it's weird. The thing that I only ever did, so I had material to shoot, was the thing that became my career. And what happened in that period? even as I resented it, right, was I was basically going and honing the weakest tool in my toolbox. Which was what, the writing? Writing, yeah. It's everyone's weakest tool. Totally. It's the last muscle to fully develop. And so much of it requires um, perspective, which you only gain when you uh, get perspective. You go through a horrible breakup, almost die, like all that kind of shit. And, you know, I just co-wrote 
uh, a thesis film for uh, a film student down at Chapman who, I mean, he's me 10 years ago, right? And I've known this kid since he was 15 years old. We met, actually, this is a really good story. He, we met on a film message board. <laughs> I was 24, he was 15. I'd put the league out. I was just starting to work at Marvel, that Captain America issue. I was working at the sound editing company. Yeah. And it was like a Christopher Nolan like film message board or something. Um, it was, I remember it was called Nolan Fans, and there was like an aspiring filmmaker section. And he used to post on there, and I would post once in a while. And um, he had a lot of opinions, I remember. Uh, but he wasn't wrong. He was just, I could tell even then, it's like, oh, this kid's wired the right way. Like, he's gonna, he's gonna do stuff. Like, I can see it. Yeah. He just needs reps, and he needs time. And so then fast forward, years later, I'd forgotten about it. And I guess we were, we were friends on Facebook. Because uh, when I finished Shadow Hours, he like commented on a photo or something, and I recognized his name, and I messaged him. I was like, "Hey, you're the you're the guy from like you know eight years ago," <laughs> yeah. and he's like, "Yeah," and he had graduated film school as an undergrad, and and had been kind of following my career and everything, and and yeah. uh, so we started talking, and and he wanted to go to Chapman for grad school, so I wrote him a letter of recommendation. Not that he you know necessarily needed it, but he applied, he got into the directing program, and from the first day he started, I was on him going, get ready to spend X amount of dollars mm-hmm. for your thesis film. Mm-hmm. Like that's just what it's going to cost mm-hmm. and take your swing. And a year ago this time, he wrote a script and he sent it to me and I read it and it was a little family drama. Uh, it, was, it was good. I had some I had some notes, but it was good. He, I remember he drove up to LA. I gave him... I gave him the notes and, uh, and then I told him, I said, now having said all that, you should absolutely not make this movie. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, why? And, uh, and I said, if you want to make Sundance Indies, that's awesome. Yep. I said, it's a tough road, but you can do it, you know, and piecing together the financing to go make those movies. Mm-hmm. This could be a calling card for those in so much as you really I don't know that you really need a calling card to try to get those types of. These days, it's almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. I said, but everything we've talked about over the years, you know, we literally met on a Christopher Nolan message board ten years ago, and you love Spielberg and J.J. Abrams and and Nolan and and if and Cameron and if like if those are the movies you want to make, then that's the kind of movie you should make right now. Yeah. And while you have these resources at your disposal, because a, let's say, a $50,000 movie at a place like Chapman is, you're really getting like a dollars to $125,000 worth of value yeah, out yeah. of it. Sure. And, uh, and I say that as someone who did it, you know? And so we talked about some different ideas that he liked and, and I, you know, helped him develop a concept and then he went on and I told him, I was like, I'll write it with you. And uh, he's like, no, I got to do it on my own. I was like, okay, man. (laughs) And so he iterated for like almost a year, all these drafts, and I'd give notes. And each time I would say, I was like, by the way, the offer still stands. Like, I'll write it with you. And and, And what I kept telling him was like, this is going to be hard enough to pull off, like just to make. Yeah, dude. Don't go into it with a faulty foundation. Because I went into the league with a foundation that I wish 
I wish I knew then what I know now, right? Mm-hmm. And we had to like ADR a lot of the movie just to try to make the narrative make more sense and things like that. Yep. And uh, and so finally he was like, okay. He's like, all right, yeah, can you do it with me? And so then we, you know, I rewrote it and rebroke it and then it got better and better and, and he just shot the thing. And there's like, there's stunts, there's big fight choreography. Oh, wow. There's like, it's very, it's very like, you'll, you'll dig it. Oh, wow. Um, his name's Keegan O'Brien. And, uh, you know, I helped him, I helped him on the casting and, and, you know, called some favors and got some good people. And, Hell yeah. and it's a case where, and I kept telling him this, it's like, I, I have so much respect for him. Uh, I was on set for most of the shoot as well. And I was telling him, it's like, your ability to put your ego aside mm-hmm. and listen to different opinions. And, you know, like the fact that he let me write it with him. That's ultimately, a big step. That's a, it's big a huge step. step. It's yeah. a huge step. And I said, it's going to serve you well. And it's very impressive. And like, I'm super proud of him, you know, and the movie's, the movie's good. It's going to be really good. I mean, they off their first cut alone, like the response down at Chapman from what I've heard is like very, Fuck very you. encouraging. Fuck you. And, but it's that case of like the writing muscle is the last thing totally, to develop. Totally. And so many filmmakers and directors, um, they self-generate and I get it. I mean, I've done it as well. Um, I have friends who have, like we were saying before, who have, tried but they're not and they they definitely aren't writers at all and it's been really hard because then it's like well then how do you get a writer exactly. it's this chicken exactly problem, exactly because you know? if you gotta prove to a writer that it's worth their fucking time yes exactly the same with, with all this shit you know? can we actually pause so i can use the bathroom sure quick? we'll take a quick pause sorry While Kyle and I go and take a break, I just want to give you guys an opportunity to take a break because this is the longest episode that I've recorded yet. And as you can see, it's great. So this is a good part or a good point for you to sort of pause this and put this aside and maybe come back to it again. Um, Or maybe you love the show and you want to keep going. But this is where I would normally break the show. And instead of breaking it up into two episodes and creating a lot more work for myself and doing reason, I figured I would just sort of put an interlude here, right? Just a bit of an interlude. And I just want to say to everybody that's listening to the show, uh, I couldn't do an episode this size without your help, right? Uh, You guys have done a really good job supporting the show. Um, And if you haven't done so already, you can donate to the show specifically for the holiday season because you'll love me. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There's a donate button on there. Or you can sign up for that Audible trial that I told you guys about. Go do that. That's great. Or what you can also do is sign up for one of the Capital One credit card deals, right? Now, I'm not going to advertise this to you uh, if you're a piece of shit, if you don't know how to manage your money, right? If you're someone that is consistently in debt and you're up late at night and you're buying shit on Amazon, you can't fucking afford it, wink, uh, maybe you shouldn't do this, right? But if you're somebody that is looking to build credit, maybe uh, you're going through the process of starting your own business and you have to put expenses on a card and you wanna get good benefits, check out the Capital One deals that we have on In Love With The Process. Go check them out, click through on them, and 
if you sign up for either one, there's a Venture Card and there's a Venture One, right? Here's the difference between the two in layman's turn. Venture Card is a $95 annual fee. You don't have to pay for the first year, but the second year you do. But what you get from that is you get, is it, how many miles is it? I'm a fucking moron. I think it's like 50,000 miles. Don't quote me on it. It's all on there, but you get a better mileage percentage, right? So I think you get the equivalent of $500 on that. Don't quote me on it. I'm an idiot. I should do the research before I do a read. Um, go check it out. They're two great deals. That's how Gene and I got across country with them, right? If you spend a certain amount of money when you first sign up for these cards, they'll actually give you points, which equal cash. And you can uh, use those points on any sort of travel stuff. So like if you're going to travel home for the holidays, if you're going to use uh, Lyft, you're going to use any of that stuff. It helps. It really fucking helps. And everybody that signs up for a card uh, goes through the application process. It gets the show a good amount of money. So if you really want to help us out, that's a great way to do it. If you're looking to get a new credit card, do it through our link. It'll be at inlovewiththeprocess.com. I'll put it up there today. All right? Um, and yeah, like I said, too, in the read, go check out that Spotify playlist that I just built for you, right? It's one of the coolest playlists, man. It's got a great selection of music. I love listening to it as I spend four or five fucking hours a day in the car here in Los Angeles. So go check it out. All right. So maybe... You want to continue. Maybe you're like, Mike, shut the fuck up. I was really enjoying this episode and I want to continue listening to it. I'll get out of your way. get into let's talk about Hadrian's Wall a little bit and uh, because it's great that you're making it into a film and it's great that it's getting to that part but it it, it started in the comic book world so at this point um, you why'd you go with image what was the deal with image well um, I mean just to put it simply it's not only image is not only the best deal in comics it's the best deal in entertainment Right. Like bar none. Um, every single thing. Here, here's, the, here's the truth about the comic book industry because comics are in, in this game of like, you know, I feel like such a, I feel like such a fucking like uh, douchebag. <laughs> I keep using the term IP, but that's what everyone fucking refers to it as. And why do you feel like a douchebag when you use the term IP? Because it sounds so like, um, like corporate agony it does you know? it does and i use it a lot as well but let's talk about intellectual property like your good idea essentially is yeah what it is. so comics have become this um comics are a medium that is perceived to be ripe for uh development of a future movie right meaning like i take a variation on the 
uh, hey, my friend has this screenplay that he'd <laughs> love to do as a graphic novel meeting like at least once a month, right? And the advice I always give is if you want to make if you want to make a comic because you love comics and you think your story works in that medium and you just and you truly love comics and you're you're serious about it, like that's a conversation like we can have, right? But if you want to make a comic to try to shore up the IP or make your screenplay more attractive because now it's exists as a comic book, I the advice I always give is uh, it is a massive uh, time and more importantly money suck. And the reality is that no one wants your comic. They want your comic from Image. They want your comic from uh, Vertigo. Well, no, Vertigo's dead now, but uh, they want your comic sometimes from Boom, uh, sometimes from Dark Horse. Aftershock right now is shopping stuff all over town, right? Mm -hmm. Vault is doing stuff. Black Mask is doing stuff. The thing is, though, so that so then you get into this this question of like, well, then how do I get my comic published there, right? Well, depending on the company, some of them, uh, some of them will do it uh, if you're, you know, even just coming as an outsider, right? But it's basically it's like borderline predatory. Yeah, you know, like a lot of these publishers, these smaller publishers, are basically set up so that. They'll put out your comic, but they know the game, right? So they're looking to either own or at the very least control all the ancillary media rights. Mm. So you might get paid a little bit of money to write your comic book, but they're going to control it or own it outright and leave it to their quote unquote Hollywood people. They're, you know, depending on the company, some of them have a Hollywood side, others are just repped at an agency or, or with managers um, and they're going to shop your stuff. And for some creators, that's fine. You know, some creators, I have friends, I've, I've, you know, writer friends who are very established in comics and, and they just, you know, they'll say to me, they're like, I don't have the aspirations to write and direct and film like you do. So like for me, for them, just like, letting it kind of go mm -hmm. um and you know it's all just gravy if anything gets made that's like it's a bonus right option money it's a bonus um it's not a thing that they really are passionate about uh i feel very different right um ownership is the most important thing in the world to me um and it's not even just it's not even just from the standpoint of being able to as we're going to get to with hadrian's wall control my material to hopefully um in the case of something like hadrian's wall leverage it into a directing opportunity right um it's it's not even that it's it's more you know what it's actually the first bit uh i buried the lead it's it's the being able to control my creations and that goes for licensing it goes for ancillary media it goes for uh even down to publishing, right? Reprints, things like that. Mm -hmm. Ownership is very important. And, you know, I came off of doing, uh, and it, this is a very different situation, but, you know, I, I came in, I was hired to come in and kind of basically reinvent Power Rangers as a more kind of complex, modern day, you know, I don't want to say sophisticated, but definitely a more kind of complex, mature series 
And as a part of that, I created this character named Lord Draken. The first year of my Power Rangers run, um, if, if Power Rangers was always about the, the strength of friendship and teamwork, I wanted to look at that through the lens of a new member joining the team, mm-hmm. how he views them and how they view him. And in the show, the Green Ranger joining the team was like super smooth. Like the Power Rangers broke the spell that put him under Rita's like dark control. And by the next episode, he's a full-fledged member of the team. Right. And I went, well, that's my way in. I don't want to, I don't have to do new origins. I don't have to retell stuff. I just can explore it through this guy, this kid joining up with them. And whereas it was super smooth in the show, in the comic, he's still haunted by Rita, like Manchurian Candidate style and like Caprica 6 and Gaius Baltar <laughs> style where it's like he's hallucinating Rita and you don't know, is he hallucinating her or is she actually still controlling him? You're not sure. And it's about him dealing with his own kind of um, self-doubt and feelings of inadequacy and um, guilt over what he had done as a bad guy and now he's going to be a Power Rangers. Is he, is he even cut out for this. And as a part of that, I told a story in the last year that was basically the culmination of him working through these issues and proving himself to himself and to the others that he is cut out for this. Yep. Uh, and it was a cautionary tale of basically an alternate future where he stayed evil, where he, when the spell was broken, he chose to stay with Rita and they killed all the Power Rangers, took the Power Coins, created armies of stormtroopers from them, and now he goes by this name, Lord Draken. Um, and the character kind of broke out. And that character then became the natural uh, villain for the big Shattered Grid event that I wrote, uh, which was my, it was kind of my swan song on the book. It was a huge, it was like Avengers Infinity War or Crisis on Infinite Earths or Lord of the Rings, but for 25 years of Power Rangers, right? And as a part of that, I directed the promo film mm-hmm. for it as, as well, okay? When you reached out to me when I was in Nova Scotia, <clears throat> The thing that was actually happening that day, uh, which is kind of funny now that we're sitting here in your living room, right? And we're talking about how we met and everything. Uh-huh. The thing that was happening when you reached out was um, that Hasbro, who now owns Power Rangers, Hasbro had just announced the uh, new wave of action figures, and Lord Draken is one of those figures. And somebody messaged me about it on on i think on twitter and they said oh man i mean because i posted i was like okay this is actually really really cool right and but someone commented that like oh my god this must be what it feels like to make it and i responded because i had complicated feelings about it and i responded and i said if i had made it i'd get a royalty percentage <laughs> and that's the thing right like you build out worlds you build out all this stuff and you don't own it. Yeah. And that's fine if you're working on an established brand, right? I knew the deal I was signing for Power Rangers. I was cool with it. Sure. And then, you know, Batman, the, same thing. The benefits of that is that you get a whole bigger audience. Absolutely. And people start to fall in love with your work. Yeah. This but <laughs> when you create wholly original stuff that's additive to a brand, like they could have sent, they like, they could have sent me an action figure. Like, right. You know what I mean? At the very least, right? Right. And I remember growing up seeing, you know, I wrote the video game. I wrote the Power Rangers video game. I don't even have a copy of it. And, and that's the thing. Like, and again, I'm not saying that from a place of, of bitterness. 
it's more from the realities of being a work for hire creator. Right. And I, I, I grew up watching interviews with, you know, Todd McFarlane mm-hmm. talking about the genesis of founding Image Comics. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Image Comics was started in 1992 by, I think it was seven artists. Let's see if I can name them. Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, uh, Wiltz Portacio, Mark Silvestri, Rob Liefeld, Eric Larson, and Jim Valentino. I think you got them. That's all seven. So they were the hottest artists in the industry working on some of the biggest books at Marvel. And they all basically went into the Marvel offices and quit on the same day. Yeah. And they turned around and then they went across the street as the story goes and to, to DC Comics and quit, even though none of them were working there. <laughs> <laughs> Just a preemptive quit. Uh, and they started their own publisher, Image Comics, where everything was truly creator-owned. Anything you create there, you own it. The publisher does not own any of it. That's insane. That is the deal as it stands to this day. And those interviews with McFarlane, I remember him talking about, uh, he was drawing Spider-Man and writing it at the time, (laughs) talking about how they were using his artwork on t-shirts and like they wouldn't even send him a t-shirt with his own artwork on it, right? And I remember being a kid thinking like, so what? Like, you're on Spider-Man. Why would you ever leave Spider-Man, right? Mm-hmm. And when the Lord Draken figure was <laughs> announced, I suddenly, it was like, oh, I totally understand that now. I totally understand that feeling, you know? Yeah. And so this is, a, again, in, which is fucking on brand for me, super long-winded way of getting to the point of if I'm going to build out original worlds and create our own books, they better actually be truly creator-owned. I'm not going to leave the rights with a publisher who really wants to be a movie producer. Right. And, you know, I'm very, very fortunate in that I have a really good relationship with Image, so I can bring my books there. It's not the case for every creator. Like, I I totally get that. I know that's a, it's a little bit of a, a privileged position to kind of, in. And I feel very, very fortunate and lucky to be able to um, publish my, my work there. Yeah. That's why when we, you know, I did Cowl, then we did Hadrian's Wall, I did The Dead Hand. I've, I've actually started editing some books as well, meaning um, if it's a project I really believe in, mm-hmm. um, I've actually started helping out. And, and you know, there's, there's, a, there's a writer in Australia who I love, Matt Groom. Super, super, super talented. I met him through doing Power Rangers and a podcast that we and his uh, cohort, Michael Basudel, three of us used to do mm-hmm. for every episode, every issue of the comic. And I realized at a certain point that Matt was a writer and he's very good. And all he's ever wanted to do is do comics. And he didn't tell me for over a year. <laughs> Talking at least once a month for over a year, he didn't tell me he wanted to write comics. And I was like, why did you never say anything? He's like, well, I didn't want to be that guy, you know? So I was like, why don't you write something original? A, you know, one shot something, first issue of something. Yep. And he did, and I read it, and I quite liked it. I had a few notes, gave them to him. And uh, I said, you know, after he rewrote it, I said, what, do, what would you think about, I've never done this before, but what if I edit this? And he's like, well, what would that mean? I said, well, rather than making introductions to people going like, hey, you should check out my unpublished writer friend's new comic idea and trying to get an artist that way, I said, 
what if I just treat this as a book that I'm running? So I can reach out to artists and say, hey, this is a book I'm putting together. I'm editing. My name's on it as, as the editor. And once we get the pitch pages done, uh, I'll walk it to publishers. And my hope was that Image would want to do it and we wouldn't have to go to other publishers. But I have relationships around town that right. I, I could, at the very least, bring something in. You know, mm -hmm. And like I said, for me, ownership is very, very important. That's not to say you shouldn't do books at other publishers if it's the right dynamic and the right fit. For me, it's not. Okay. For, my own, for my own material, I should say. Right. And so that's what happened, and we I walked it to Image, and and Eric Stevenson greenlit it. And oh, it was that's called Self Made. And now Matt and Eduardo own this book, and they got some good interest um, for film, TV stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And the cool thing is they're in complete control of it. Wow! So Hadrian's Wall, similar situation where for me as a someone who wants to direct, like I, like we were talking at the top of the podcast, because of the Shadow Hours short, the Shadow Hours feature, and then um, demonstrating what I can do in that medium. Hadrian's Wall is a book that they wanted, and the, the component of the fact that Alec, Rod, and I own it. Of course. <clears throat> put us in a position of power where... Either we're going to make the deal that we want or we're going to walk away from it. And we walked away from deals on Cowell, a couple of them over the years, that wouldn't guarantee us being involved. And that's the position you're in when you're able to do a book at Image. If you do have those kind of aspirations of doing stuff yeah, hell in, yeah. in, uh, yeah, yeah. in live action. Yeah, yeah. Dude, that's smart, man. That's really smart. And it's cool that that fucking exists. Thank God that that exists, huh? Yeah, it's... Um, it's it's pretty remarkable, uh, and and again, a lot of a lot of publishers, a lot of quote unquote creator owned publishers in comics that say they're creator owned, you know, they're really not. How know? does how does I mean without I mean you don't have to get specific, but I'm curious, like how does image how does the money game work with them? Do they split the profits fifty fifty? Like how do they keep how do they stay in business if they're not well? I mean, acquiring all that shit. So they do take. There's a publishing fee every time you know you send a book to the printer. Mm -hmm. There's a publishing fee that is, uh, you know, applied to the accounting on your book, yeah. right? Yeah. So they deduct that publishing fee before you get royalties. Um, it's not you know astronomical or anything like that. Uh, they don't take any royalties on the floppies. Wow. But they take a percentage on the collected editions, the uh, trade paperbacks. And they sell a lot of those. They sell a lot of them. When you have a book like The Walking Dead. That's huge. Like, yeah. I'm I'm sure The Walking Dead has helped keep the lights on over the years. Yeah. You know. And is that the part of the decision process for you just sticking with, because your book was what, eight issues? Hadrian's Wall was eight issues, yeah. 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 It, well, I mean, it ended really well. Did mm -hmm. you, were you, when you started it, were you like, this is only going to be eight issues or? Yeah, because, um, yeah, I mean, actually this is a really good, probably topic um, for us. When you're building something out, um, the, the, it's like putting together a car, okay. right? Do you, building out a world, building out a concept, building out a story, uh, there are two ways to do it, right? Like in comics as well as in live action. Like 
is it contained? Is it a movie or is it a show? Right. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of like the, the two things right now. And everyone kind of pushes you towards shows more and more because, because of all the streamers, more opportunity, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way I, the, the kind of, um, the metaphor I use is like, are you building a car that needs to go, that you want to go zero to 60 in four seconds, or do you want it to last for 200,000 miles? Cause those are very different engines. Hell yeah. So it's, it's, it's that. Okay. So Hadrian's wall to me was designed to go zero to 60 in four seconds. It's not designed to be a long running series. And a big reason for that is because the world itself is not all that interesting. No, it's the, it's the, it's the characters, it's the relationships. Yeah. yeah. It's a murder mystery on a spaceship. I can build out the world. And we did. And we alluded to things, interesting things like there were nuclear detonations in Moscow and DC or New York, wherever we said it, um, in the 1980s. And this is the future that came out of that. And that's why there's a little bit of an analog kind of retro feel and things like that, which I loved, but that's not enough to like, that's not interesting enough to like spend time exploring further. Exactly. To me anyway. Exactly. Well, dude, and the reason why I was so fucking pumped about the book was that I had been through some breakups. I had been through that stuff and it was speaking strongly to me. Like, how do you, how do you, like you said earlier in the show, how do you get over the fact that you built something so personal with somebody? And I've talked about this before. I feel like as a, as a man and as a boy, this is an interesting sort of social thing. Um, when you're young, if you come from a decent family, and if, if you, when you're young, you get that emotional response from your mother. Mm-hmm. So you're with your mother and you get physical and right. hugs and kisses and all that kind of shit. And then as soon as you're thrust into the pack of wolves with the rest of them, so whether it's preschool, whatever it is, you're put with a bunch of other kids, then you start to become even further and, and even more distant from being emotionally connected to somebody. So, and I'm off on a tangent. No, no, it's all good. Um, so then you are like, don't show them, don't give me a kiss in public. And you start to get away from that. And so then you get to a point where uh, you find that again. So like when you start dating, at least with me, when you start dating, you're in a position where someone's actually giving you physical contact again and giving you all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm completely fascinated with the the art of letting down that defense, letting down that as a, as a guy, letting down all of that and then accepting that and then building this world and then having it taken from you or having it change. And then how do you recover from that? Yeah. Go back to a world where you don't have that. Right. And then how do you process the person that took that or was a part of that process? And how do you let yourself do it again? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what kind of shit do you have to go through to get to the point where you're okay with that again? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fucking tough. Like, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Like, my stuff was three, three and a half years ago, something like that. Yeah. And And look, it's not helped by the fact that both of my film projects are very connected <laughs> and to, you're just digging right through that shit over and over again yeah trust me the idea of diving back in on the screenplay for hadrian's wall doesn't bring a lot of shit back up to the surface or anything um you know i i actually found <clears throat> i actually found kind of a i mean i don't want to i don't want to say too much about it all just out of respect and everything but sure. 
But what I will say is that um, I didn't have commitment issues. Um, and then this happened. And part of this, and I'm not going to say all of it, but part of this and how things kind of ended yeah. definitely are definitely has its roots in the other person's, you know, commitment issues. That happens. And so the irony is, I remember we sat down like a year. We, we've had coffee a few times over the years and shit. And like, you know, we're fine, air quotes, right? <laughs> and uh, Which is part of the process, by the way. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're civil and we're fine. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, not really. <laughs> yeah, dude, <laughs> you know? you're not. Yes. You're, never, you're yeah. never really fine. It's the uh, process of getting over it, buddy. And, uh, but anyway, so like a year after we sat down and I made a comment at one point and I was like, you know, I was like, I am not going to talk to you about other people, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want to hear about other people. Like Mm -hmm. that is a boundary that I, I refuse to cross. Mm -hmm. Having said that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what I will say is I just blew something up that I was in. And I blew it up because I couldn't like commit, right? Dude, it's, yeah. And this person who kind of did the same thing to me looked at me and knew exactly what I was saying. And uh, she was like, you're welcome. Yeah, like, oh, come on. Like kind of cringing, like, because <laughs> I was basically saying like, I, I guess I have commitment issues now. Like, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, that stuff goes, it gets better. It gets better. Like it fades. Um, But yes, like you hit the nail on the head. Like how do you, how do you pick up the pieces after that? And then as I kind of added on there, like how do you let yourself do it again and trust that it's going to be. Well, dude, yeah. And look, I don't mind getting personal because it, it, it doesn't matter to me. So for, I went through. I normally wouldn't, except I have a movie that the narrative on the movie it. is very tied to this particular. So, so I could like, say ah. this shit and not be tied to it. Right, right, right. Uh, so I've been through like three serious relationships and I'm in the best relationship I've ever been in my life right now. Mm-hmm. So Gene is the best. Um, but when I first, when I, when I went through my first, I'm, I'm fascinated by this as a storyteller. Sure. So when I went through my first one, I got in a relationship with someone and it was, you know, it, it was sort of accidental mm-hmm. and I sort of walked into it. Yeah. That's and, what this one was, you know, and you just don't know. So you get into it and you're just <laughs> like, I don't know what the right things are. I don't mm-hmm. say the right fucking things. I don't know how to interact or live with somebody. Right. And she ended up leaving me for good reason because I was kind of a piece of shit. And so at the aftermath of that, when you get broken up with, you have to process that. And right. The aftermath for me on that was like, I was a piece of shit. I need to fix my piece of shit stuff. And like what we do as a human species, my pendulum swings so far in the other direction where I'm like, I'm going to be the perfect. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to be attentive. I'm going to go through this whole process. Right. And so the aftermath of my breakup with her forced me, personally forced me to be a better person. So then I went through the process of going, whoever I end up with next, I'm going to be the best person I could ever be. What I didn't realize, because I was so focused on the opposite end of it, was that you, a relationship is 50-50. So yes. you have to be picking the right fucking person to do that with. So I jumped into my next relationship like fully fucking committed. 
I'm going to listen to everything you do, everything you say, but not realizing that what I was getting into was a broken scenario to begin with. Dude, I spent so many hours with a therapist <laughs> talking about, um, cause my, cause my default mode and I've been like this since I was a kid, like I was always very sensitive as a kid. Um, my default mode has always been what it's my fault. What did I do? I I'm, I am less than sure. Right? And part of it is as a writer, I mean, that's, that's the anxiety like day in, day out for me. Um, and I'm trying to like, I want to start meditating or something because I, I, I there's, tried recently. there's so much anxiety tied up. There's so much anxiety tied up with um, the, the, the process of creating, particularly because, for me anyway, um, like I don't believe in writer's block, not in the way that you hear about it. Hmm. To me, it's more of like a writer's lays. Hmm. Um, and, and so much of it is we all have taste. And if you have ta- good taste in material and in storytelling and writing, it means that when you're creating material, you fucking know what's good and what's not. Right. And guess what? Your shit's not good. It's right. not good until it is. Right. That's just the process, and you have to respect the process. Right. But so often, the quote-unquote block is you being unwilling as a creator to settle for the cliched or for the trite or for the easy. I'm fucking right there with you, 100%. And so for me... There's a lot of like, even knowing that, even mm-hmm. everything I'm saying here, like, and I have some thoughts on, on what relationships actually are in, in our lives as well. And I want to get back to, <laughs> um, that's all like, that sounds great. Like you can know that inherently, you can know it logically, you can know it objectively. It doesn't change how you feel. And that's what makes you potentially a good storyteller and a good creator, a good writer. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to cut yourself off from those feelings, but you want to, try to not let them consume you either right and so like after this thing i spent so many hours just like dwelling and beating myself up mm-hmm. beating myself up mm-hmm. and um for a variety of reasons and you know some of which i don't really want to get into here but yep. and i said something uh something had happened at one point i think i said something or i sent a text or something and i was really like worried about how it was going to be received right okay. and by the i i don't even remember what it was i'm sure it wasn't that that bad but i remember telling because there was no like i don't get like i don't lose my temper i don't like there's no like blow-ups or nothing like that <clears throat> which is very different from how hadrian's book <laughs> Hadrian's wall actually <laughs> the book actually plays out um and i was telling my therapist about this and i was like really like upset about whatever whatever how it was going to be perceived uh-huh. And my therapist says to me, she goes, you know, you're really not putting yourself first here, right? Yeah. And like off the cuff without missing a beat, I like looked at her and I was like, yeah, but you have to understand, I get paid to write both sides of the conversation. <laughs> and I said it very flippantly, but I think about that all the time now. And that was, it was, year, it was years ago now, right? And it's true, like as storytellers, like our greatest ability and commodity is our ability to empathize yeah often to our own detriment or at least for me so like me putting myself in someone else's shoes or being worried about them or not wanting to affect them or hurt them or make them uncomfortable means i swallow a lot yep and that's not healthy in a relationship either no not at all dude 
And then what you do is you go through this process. For me, um, you said it's been what, three years for you at this point? Oh, out of this one? Yeah. Uh, three and a half, something like that. Yeah, I think mine was like five. Yeah. It took five yeah. years for me to like... I love that we're really talking about it. this while your girlfriend's standing. Well, Gina, was a, Gina was there for all that stuff. <laughs> Hi, Gina. <laughs> go ahead, no, go make noise. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, make noise. I, you've been tiptoeing around. What are you doing? What is that? It's a bag of water. A water? Oh, wires. A bag of wires. wires. Oh, okay. We've all got them. <laughs> um, but no, nah, she's fine because she was she was through the whole process with me. So, um, yeah, it took me a while, dude. And and for me, it was a little bit easier because uh, my big breakup. She ended up literally. She went on vacation. She went to Europe for three months. Came back and was like, "I'm leaving that night," and just took off. And was gone. That, yeah, yeah. It was just fucking gone. And she was gone for wow for like three years, and no no reasons, no no understanding why, oh no communication. Gosh. And then we had uh, similar friends, similar friend groups. No one would tell me anything. So I was like completely in the Holy fucking dark. Cow. It was brutal, dude. Um, <clears throat> it was a really sort of life changing fucking thing. And then I got over that, and uh, through the process of doing all sorts of shitty, shitty shit as a human being where you're like, I'm looking for shit and I'm out there dating and I'm being a real piece of crap. And sort of going through that whole process and then we met as friends and we started to hang out and uh, we didn't decide to date for quite some time. And then the ex came back around. And so she came back around and she's like, I want to be friends, I want to do this stuff. And I had a lot of unresolved shit. So I'm like, Okay, and it, and I went through the process of trying to explain to myself, I can do this. I can be friends. I can be non-connected to all that kind of stuff. And then I would hang out every once in a while, and we start we talk about stuff. And I was just trying to teach myself to be not emotionally connected to this human being, right? Which is fucking impossible, right? And for me, the thing that changed everything, and we haven't talked about this, but I had my, I had a head injury. I went on a date with her. Went ice skating, fell on the ice, cracked my skull, oh. ended up in intensive care. I had a hematoma. I was going to die. Oh That's where God. 12 cam came from. Um, so I was in intensive care and she took me there and Gina had been through the whole process with me, the entire process. Now, while I was in intensive care, my ex showed up and she came in. Holy shit. And her, How did she know you were? Because uh, I was posting about it. Uh, we had it online just because there was a bunch of people asking. And so sure. it was out. See, this is why you block. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so then she showed up and she came in. And I remember kind of bits and pieces of it. My I was going through all sorts of vertigo and like strange visions and shit. Um, and so she came in and she sat next to me. And it was all about, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe I To know, her? Yeah. I can't believe I know somebody that's going through this. I can't believe this is happening oh, to me. That. And it wasn't until that moment where I had the contrast. I had the contrast of Gina who tried to murder me. Right. She was the one that took me on the date, went through the whole process, but then was there with me for like a week straight in intensive care. Met my right. family for the first time right. in intensive care. And then I was exchanging with somebody else who was like, I can't believe this happened to me. Yeah. And it was at that moment, like five, six years later, yeah. that I was just like, you're out of my fucking life. Yeah, I mean... That's a lot. It takes, but because of, I don't know, it's a longer conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the funny thing for me is, is like, 
it's so tied that experience weirdly like I've dated plenty since and everything sure um but that experience is so um specifically influential to some of my creative projects so you gotta keep going back it's weird it's not fun it's not a thing i like you know i trust me i don't get enjoyment out of it you know but the fact that i mean the deal with the devil i made was drawing so heavily on it for hadrian's wall and it made the book really emotionally raw and resonant Mm-hmm. And by the way, like anyone who reads the book, like is going to go like, holy fuck, these two fucking people hate each other. It's not, <laughs> there's quite a lot of sure. um, uh, dramatization in the book and, and like, and everything else. But it's, it's, it's definitely like, there are scenes in the book that are straight up, like things that were said to me, like during hmm. breakup. And I just said, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to write from life, you know? And so there is like a, um, there is a bit of a, like, you know, your brain kind of, especially when you're diving back into worlds and things like that, like your brain kind of keeps an experience. It keeps a person or the idea of a person alive. Um, yeah, because your, your brain is actually finding new pathways, right? Mm -hmm. Like a memory becomes the more times you access a memory, the more it kind of changes. You know, right. It kind of becomes a different thing. Every time you tell that story, it gets a little bit of something different. Yeah. And, and so like, I'm really grateful to have had the experience, as weird as that sounds, because I do think, first of all, on a personal level, like, I learned a lot. Like, I learned how to truly love someone and, and what it's like, what that feels like and, and to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of what I learned in the relationship and, and, uh, and afterwards, um, you know, is, is, is great. It's great material as a, as a person. Um, it's also great material as a storyteller and, you know, the, the life I have now, um, you know, I'm never going to be one of, I've never been one of those people that is like, Oh man, one day you'll say this awful thing that happened to you is the greatest thing that ever happened to you in your life. Like, (laughs) I don't believe that. Yeah. Right? Like, but you have a choice how to respond to negative things in life. Fuck yeah. And I chose to level up. And I chose, you know, I went, like I said, I went to Europe, did all this crazy stuff. And then I came home and, um, you know, I flew through Chicago and again, remember I was writing the book while this was going on. And so I came through Chicago and, uh, I was only going to stay. I actually didn't even want to come through Chicago, but my mom was like, you know, you're gonna, you have to f- come through Chicago anyway. Like you have to do a layover, like stay for a few days, stay, you know, I was like, all right. So I landed on the, <laughs> the day of uh, game one of the World Series with the Cubs. <laughs> so I was there for like the whole World Series, which was awesome. I mean, sucks because I'm a White Sox fan. But uh, no, it was really cool. And I'm glad I got to see it in the city and everything. But I left when I was 18. 
you know, I went to University of Iowa for two years and then I moved to California and went to Chapman uh, when I was 20. Wow. And every time I've gone home since, I'm 34 now, every time I've gone home since, I always have said to myself, like, one day when I get, when I have time, when I finally have my career in a good place and everything and I'm not like writing, you know, fucking 15 books a month and shit, like, I'm going to spend time back here. I'm going to come back here for a big chunk. I'm going to live here. I'm going to spend time like, you know, with my family and things like that. And the first day or two that I was back, I was super jet lagged and I was waking up at like 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. I go downstairs. My dad was in manufacturing for 45 years. And so he was like a 4 a.m. early riser. Mm -hmm. So I would um, go downstairs to the kitchen. He'd already be awake and he's like making oatmeal. And I remember him asking me like one of the first days, he's like, do you want, uh, he's like, do you want, do you want some oatmeal? It was like, it was still dark out, you know? <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. And so we made oatmeal and then we're like sitting at the kitchen table, like eating oatmeal and like both kind of like reading the newspaper. And for the first time since everything had happened, I've like had this kind of calm. Like I felt mm -hmm. this kind of calm and I realized my dad at that time was, um, 70 and my mom was 64, I want to say, and they were both retired. And I looked around and I realized like, I don't have anywhere I need to be. Like everything's in storage back in LA. And like that time I keep talking about every time I come back here, like that time's right now. Yeah. And so I stayed for like four months. That's awesome. And I got to hang out with my parents as an adult for four months. Dude. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And I have a new book coming out, hopefully next year, that is... One of the biggest things I've ever done and could absolutely be a huge like foundational series for me. Um, and it's, you know, I'll put it this way. If you liked what I did on Power Rangers, uh, <laughs> you, should, you should be on the lookout for this. If you liked what I did on Power Rangers and you're familiar with my Batman Beyond and Nightwing stuff, you should be on the lookout for this. But um, it takes place back in like my hometown or it starts in my hometown anyway. Cool. And it's kind of from that period where I like kind of moved back, you know, for like four months. That's and cool. And that's an experience I wouldn't have had. Yeah. I just, I just wouldn't have had, had, you know, the other stuff not happened. You know? Well, and we were talking earlier about <clears throat> in order to get that muscle right, in order to get that writing muscle right, you have to have time in, you have to have experience, you have to have these moments. And when you're someone that's young and you're like, fuck, I just want to get this thing going and let me just run with it. You don't understand the power of that, and it isn't until you find yourself in that scenario, or I find myself in mm -hmm. intensive care, or yeah, there's some sort of weird scenario. It and it's the same thing for me. Like I almost fucking died. Yeah, and if I hadn't almost died, I wouldn't have twelve cam. I wouldn't have been in the offices of the people we talked about off air. I wouldn't have had all that shit. Now, counter argument, and by the way, uh, speaking of time, uh, the uh, my date tonight just had to reschedule, so I'm good. Okay. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> counter argument you don't know what your life would have been like without that experience sure and there might have been and there probably would have been some awesome stuff as well oh i'm sure that that's all i'm saying is like i'm I, sure it's a super like reductionary but also like uh 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 coping it's a super like kind of like reductionary coping mechanism to say well, this awful thing that happened to me was actually kind of the greatest because it turned into all these other things. And I get why people say that and do that or, uh -huh. or believe in that. 
because it makes it easier, right? Sure. But the reality is that there probably would have been some amazing things and also bad things that happened had that awful thing not happened. Oh, for know? sure. And but, you don't know what those are. But but I fucking love this one. So Yeah, exactly. So, so like if you're if you're going, oh, dude, if I you're have, going I, into the origin, you're I, like, well, fuck yeah, this was the dude, spot and I, this is why I like it. I have a 1930s French art deco building or yeah. apartment with a with a black and white tuxedo cat. <laughs> And I play retro Sega Genesis cartridges. Like, <laughs> like my life's fucking awesome. Like yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm good, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, I mean, that's just, that's I, what, that's part of the process. This got like really off topic, didn't it? No, but it's good. <laughs> this is good, man. This is all the good shit. We could sit here and blab about our awesome projects and all the really great things that no one else is doing. But <laughs> I don't know about that. That's not that's not what we're doing here, man. I mean, so who who is who is your listener base? For this our listener base is it's a bunch of different folks. So it's a lot of young filmmakers. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of young. Um, there's photographers. There's actors. There's musicians. There are just people that ultimately are looking for inspiration in life because we're living in a time period right now where. The purpose for why we're here is being pulled away from us a lot. I think that there are a lot of, there's a lack of purpose, I think, for a lot of folks. And so the people that are listening to this show are just looking to be inspired again. And I think that's what these conversations do. I think being able to understand from a young age, it's almost impossible because you haven't been through it yet. But being able to understand that the stuff that you need as an artist will come to you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and for you to sit there in that scenario with your father, it's a great story. For you to sit there with your father at that table, you realize that you're able to like, you have that moment where you look around and go, this is something. And it happens. It totally happens. It's, yeah, it's something that is, um, it's, you know, it's significant, you know? And um, I remember actually, there was a moment where, I want to say it was like a couple weeks. I was there. I'd been there for like probably like two weeks. And um, I booked a flight to go back to LA mm-hmm. to uh, look at some apartments and shit. I think, I, I think I'd lined up a few places to look at, which is really hard to do, as you know, from Fuck. afar. Oh, my God. And I'd had a friend go scout some places for me and shit like that. And um, so I booked this flight. And it didn't, I think I was leaving the next morning. It was a Sunday night and something, something wasn't, just wasn't right. You know, it didn't feel right. I think I'd actually, I think I had actually texted my ex because I found a key in my bag and it was a key she'd been looking for, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to, whatever, it doesn't matter. Like it, it was, it was fine, but it was also just like, just everything about it, and then it's going back to LA and just like it's bringing all that shit back up. And yeah, and my mom had been like kind of like, you know, my, 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 I love my mom to death. My mom is very much like a well, if there's a problem, let's let's solve it, you know. <laughs> and so she's like, we need a place to live, and so she'd be sending me listings of places, and I'm going like, I don't. This is <sighs> right. It's like a lot of pressure, you know. And and so I was like, okay, I guess I'll fly back and I'll I'll do this. Right. And I'll right. And um. And then we're talking more about it. We're talking about it. And I was like, and I finally just said, she could tell something was wrong. And I finally just said, I was like, I don't want to go back. I said, I'm not, I feel like I'm here. I'm making headway on my work. And I, you know, I was writing more Hadrian's Wall. I had another book that I was writing that still hasn't come out yet, but it'll be out this year. 
Um, and there was something else I, I was starting to do project-wise. Oh, well, just Power Ranger stuff and everything. And I was like, I feel like I'm in a good kind of flow and I can focus on this. And I just, I don't, I don't want to go back. I wasn't ready to, you know? And so I just, and she's like, well, then don't. Mm, that's wonderful. And so I just canceled my flight and I stayed. And then I, that's when I, that's that. And, and we talked about, it. I was like, and I'm here with you guys and I don't have, cause I think it was like right before Thanksgiving and I was going to go back and then come back here and then go back out again. And it was like, this is just, I'm just gonna, you know what? Like I'm going to deal with this like in the new year. Dude. You know? And that sense of relief. Oh, it's huge. Must've it felt when she was like, just stay just that moment. Yeah. I mean, it's super fucked up when you think about like, you know, like my bedroom hasn't changed since I left when I was like 18, you know? So it's like, well, it has a little, but like all my old shit is there. So it's like falling back into an old life where yeah. like you're not the same size as the bed is made for anymore, you know? Like that gets a little like fucked up. Um, actually, the really funny thing from when I was back then during that time, someone I went to high school with, uh, I was, I think literally the next day, I was like on dating apps, you know, I was like sure. swiping back in my hometown and shit just because, and, um, all of a sudden I see someone I know and I was like, Whoa, that's weird. And I know, I think the setting was like pretty localized. So I was like, that means they're here. And we we lived like, we lived like 35 minutes outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so I messaged her, I think on Facebook or I texted her. I can't remember which. And I was like, Hey, like this is super random, but I just saw you on this. Like, are you back in town? She's like, Oh yeah. She's like, I just went through like a pretty big breakup and this and that. And I'm back with my parents. for a little bit. I was like, well, I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Uh, and so we started hanging out and like, we had this like, kind of like weird, like couple month, like <laughs> mini relationship back in our hometown where we were both, staying with our respective parents weird it was really weird it was really weird um but what a cool what a cool little experience though man yeah it was an adventure it was an adventure i love that shit and at the end of the day that's what we're doing right we're supposed to experience these things if we're if we're even going to pretend like we have the right to tell stories i think you have to go through these experiences i think everyone has the right to tell a story i think uh, absolutely you know i mean but For me, for me, the debate I constantly have with myself, it's not what it would be the natural kind of like follow up to that statement, mm -hmm. which is like, but should this be, but is this a story that should be told? Oh, it's yeah. not that. No. It's, but can I make this story resonant and interesting? Well, you know, talking about Hadrian's Wall, the stuff that you do in that book isn't, like the the plot line isn't cutting. I mean, it's a it's a detective story. It's people trapped on a station, and the fact that it, he's going through a breakup. It's it's very much a noir, so it fits within right. the puzzle pieces of a noir, mm -hmm. um, which I like. But the the stuff that resonated with me was all of that sticky sort of texture that comes from the shit that you were going through when you were doing it. Right, and that's. It's not like you're reinventing the fucking wheel. It's not like you're going through this thing and you're like, I'm going to reinvent how stories are told. You're actually going through the process of telling like a great genre story within the confines of it, but yeah. then layering in all that really juicy shit. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I have like kind of a weird process as a writer where 
I'm very much an outside-in writer. Okay. Uh, and what I mean by that is I don't create characters and then try to find stories for them. I build a story. I build a concept. This is this isn't always the case, but I guess what happens most of the time, especially on my creator own work, is like I have an idea or a concept that I can just tell it has legs. Like there's stuff there to mine, and I'm maybe not quite sure initially what that is, but there's stuff there to mine. Mm-hmm. And remind me to, to uh, remind me to tell the memento example if okay. I forget. Yep. Because this really this articulates it really well, um, and so then I start to build. What's the version? What's the most interesting through line through this concept or through this world, mm-hmm. right? And then I build characters who are either contradictory to what I'm trying to explore or supportive of what I'm trying to explore. And I'm I'm saying this like I'm not I don't think about this as I'm doing it. I'm just I'm like now self analyzing how I build things. So like. Anyone listening that is a writer or wants to write, like this is not a um, this is not a uh, a prescription. It's more just like it, it's a thing that you kind of start to just do. You mm-hmm. find kind of your own way through it. And now I'm having to like articulate it, so that's why it's sounding really probably prescriptive. But I start to build characters that are my best way through that material, or that I feel like provides for the most interesting opportunities to explore some of like the emotional or thematic stuff that I'm interested in exploring. And then at a certain point, now that's all very like kind of by the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. At a certain point, all that gets thrown away because there is nothing worse than being uh, boring on the page. (laughs) So at a certain point, I kind of start from these archetypes, right? And then I start to figure out or come up with like, all right, what's, uh, what's, what would make this more interesting? What's, what's a quirk or a trait or a, or something? What can I do here that I feel like I haven't seen that often or would be either put me out of my wheelhouse or, or something I don't know how to do or, or something I don't like about myself. Right. Actually, actually I, (laughs) I said that on a panel one time. Now, I, now that I think about it, somebody asked a question about how do you build characters, and I said um, I start with archetypes, and then I add shit I hate about myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad formula either, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and so it's an outside-in approach yeah. where I start conceptually uh, and build what I need to build to articulate the points that I want to make. Mm-hmm. But then at a certain point, it comes down to like, all right, but how do you make the people pop? How do you make them interesting of course. and relatable? Of course. And that's where it gets into like a little bit more of the ethereal um, or the ephemeral, like as you're trying to like capture something that you can't quite, you know, it's, it's just skill. It's just not, not skill. It's, it's just like, it's just reps. You just do it enough. And exactly. You, you, you got to weightlift enough. Yeah. And you tap into something that's really personal to you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's fascinating because we do... Uh, Will and I do a lot of the similar shit where we usually start, and for years we started more at a, sort of a conceptual, like, I don't want to make, like, how do I make a movie that I want to watch and how do I do this, how do I redesign this fucking thing? And then it slowly comes back down to character for us. And then lately with our new pitch, our new pitch actually started with characters. Where mm-hmm. We were just like, these are these characters. 
That's cool. so fucking hard for me to do. Well, dude, like, we were finding that it was restrictive for us in the pitch room. So like when we go into pitch rooms and if I go into a pitch room with just conceptual and I'm at a conceptual level and I start it like 12 cam as a pitch, I had a goddamn beautifully printed made Bible on the rules of how the shit works because it's not about vampires. It's not about werewolves. So like you right. have to fucking explain that crap. Um, and then you just get the glaze where you're sitting there and you're like, here's all this stuff. As opposed to like on our last pitch session where I went in and I started character and I was just like, here's this guy and this is what happens. And this is what goes with him. And then they're like, oh, we get it. And then it's like, okay, right. now put him on a space station. Now do this. Now do that. Yeah. So, I mean, from a pitch standpoint, absolutely. But, um, when, but when you're conceptualizing something for, at least for this last round, we started the other way where it was like, I need to know, I need to be more passionate about that character in my pitch before I am as passionate yes. about what this, cause the story's going to fucking change between them. Dude, I've got, a, I've got a funny little anecdote. Um, I optioned a book of mine. I optioned, well, I'll just say what it is. I won't say where it is, but I optioned the dead hand. Okay. Uh, my end of the cold war spy thriller. Okay. Uh, and it's, uh, it's about secret, cities in the soviet union that are on no maps and they're the cities where like the greatest weapons of the war were built like this is a real thing by the way um but my book is kind of this sci-fi look at one of these secret cities that spoiler alert um you think in the first issue is in the middle of colorado and it turns out it's actually in siberia so it's very all-american and the small town Mayberry Sheriff, it's called Mountain View and things like that. But no one ever really leaves or comes in. Huh. And you're like, there's something weird going on here. And it gets into doomsday weapons that are actually being managed by the town secretly and like AI systems and shit like that. So, <clears throat> um, so we optioned that book and that was one, and again, it's not announced yet, but it was a, a situation where I said to the company, uh, because again, the company that it was, I, 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 and my friend Robbie's point earlier, like you have a bunch of bullets and you have a full clip, like, you know, take a shot, like let one go. I said, you know what? This was coming on the heels of Hadrian's wall deal and shadow hours landing with the producer that I'm very excited about. Mm -hmm. And so I, I said, you know what? I don't need to be involved in this one because years ago I almost sold cowl but I was adamant and I had to be writing the pilot and I had to be very actively involved and they wouldn't commit to that. Uh, it was Fox 21 at that time, but we had like a big package. We had like trigger street, um, mm-hmm. you know, as obviously before Kevin Spacey and everyone mm-hmm. that whole, everything about that. And in hindsight, I'm glad it didn't happen as a result of that, of sure. who he you know, turned out to be and everything. Yeah, you dodged a bullet on them. Uh, but then new Regency and then Fox 21. And they kind of issued this, uh, you know, they made, they issued some deal memos to us, uh, and then they like pulled the writing deal off the table, and we were like, whoa, what, you know? And it turned out they just didn't want to commit. They wanted the IP, they wanted the book, right. and they wanted to leave it to whatever A-list showrunner they were right. hoping to try to land, whether Alec and I would be involved. And we just decided, you know what? We're not going to do that. And so we just, we walked away from the deal. Uh, and because the book was at Image, we were able to. <laughs> so on, I've thought about that over the years. And I've thought like, would my career be further along had I 
been willing to part we with one of those things. We all have those fucking thoughts, yeah. Because the reality is, well, the reality is twofold. One, the likelihood of it actually getting made is slim, right? right? Uh, at that point in particular, it was only at a studio level. There were no networks. No networks have ever heard the pitch, right? But if you go to the studio and it gets tied up and then they develop it and then whatever, whatever, it ultimately, if it doesn't go, it's kind of dead forever or at least for a long time because then it goes into turnaround and there's already been a bunch of money that a studio has spent on it and then whatever new studio comes in typically has to repay those costs to the first studio and it just becomes even harder to get it going. Yeah. The flip side is, what if it had gotten made? Well, sure, I would have given up my kind of like one of my babies like and, and not just my one of my babies like it's a book it's a pitch that i gave it's a 20 minute presentation that i give in the room right visual yep. aids everything i walk through everything yep and it's based on my comic which is based on my film like i can't just right you're so into it. it yeah you're so into that at that point so on dead hand i was like you know what this time i'm gonna let one go and, um, uh, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get too into the machinations of it because you don't need to. Yeah. But at a certain point, uh, you know, 10 months in, you know, a situation kind of an opportunity kind of came up. I wouldn't even say an opportunity. Um, some things kind of changed around on the project and someone that was going to do it wasn't going to do it anymore. And I proposed, I was like, well, I was like, I was like, can I throw out an idea? And they're, they're like, sure. I was like, why don't you let me do it? I said, you know what I've got going on. You know who I'm doing Shadow Hours with. You've read it. Like, you know, I'll bring in a big feature writer to do it with me that gives you the kind of auspices that you guys want in order to be, to make the pack or the, the project more attractive to um, networks. And they're like, that's, and I, you know, and, and I'm doing, you know, anyway. So, so they were like, yeah, like we're, we could be open to that. They're like, but you know, you're gonna have to pitch because we actually have interest from some other, like as time went on, it turned out they started getting interest from some kind of pretty high, high end people. So it created this really weird dynamic where, hmm. I was going in as the rights holder <laughs> to pitch a take to adapt my own book <laughs> against other people who had takes on my book. So if I don't get it, I still have to, I'm still going to be involved <laughs> for these other people's takes. You know, you see what I'm saying? It's very strange. It was very strange. And... <laughs> It didn't end up uh, working out, but what I thought was so funny was when, and to their credit, they called me, they didn't call my reps. They called me to tell me like, look, we just, yeah, we don't think it's the right, you know, approach or something like that, which I give them a ton of respect for. Uh, but they were like, one of the things they said was like, yeah, we just don't feel like, you know, you really had a solid understanding of the characters. Yeah. <laughs> And then they were like, and maybe that's just because, you know, you wrote them, you created them, so you didn't feel like you had to pitch them out. But it was like, well, it's kind of a 
first meeting. It was kind of a first conversation that we were having yeah. with the person I was bringing in to do it with me and everything. But I just thought it was so funny. It was like, but I like they're my, but they're my, they're actually my <laughs> characters, you know, like. <laughs> It's such a weird business, man. <laughs> it really is. And it gets so convoluted. It's so crazy. And at the end of the day, it's so hard not to think that way where, you know, we make shit. You know, we sit down, we make stuff, we put it together. And all these people that are involved are there and they're important. But the more time I spend out here pitching and going through this process, it's just like, just let us make things. Right. And just like give us the opportunity to make things and and not everything is a billion dollar winner here. Can we just make some smaller things and what it says something about us socially right now where it it just doesn't seem like we have the patience to build. And it's like I feel like everybody wants the fast cash. Well, yeah, but that also that also applies to talent. It applies to filmmakers. And actually, I, I listened to the episode that, that Phil did with you, yep. and he had a phrase that I've been saying for a long time, so I, I, I loved hearing it, okay. which is like, you don't have to, like, your first time up at the plate, like, you're not trying to hit a home run, like, just get a shot. Was it Phil that said this, or I'm thinking of someone else? I think it was, I think it might have been him. Um, like, just get on base. Exactly, it was him. Yep. Get on base. Yep. Um, I've, the saying I've, the, the kind of, you know, um, bastardization of it that I've said over the years is like, everyone wants to hit a grand slam the first time up at the plate. Mm -hmm. And the reality is you actually can't even control whether you're going to be in a position to hit a grand slam your first time up at the plate because it requires the bases to be loaded. Right. 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 So like it's such a long shot and there's luck involved in that. However, um, I see this in comics all the time, and I and I've I've seen it from afar. I'm sorry, I've been a part of it in comics, and I've seen it from afar on the um, on the filmmaking side of things, which is that uh, boomer bust potential mm. that new people have. Right. So, like in comics, everyone's looking for, and and again, film as well. Everyone's looking for a grand slam. Exactly. Right? So push. they would rather often in comics what you see is like new voices, new people that become the hot commodity and they haven't actually done anything yet. Right. The more you write in comics, the like unless you pop and, and popping is, is such a product of not only the work being really good and, and the voice being specific and unique, but it's a product of time and, and where you are at that point in time. So what does the landscape of the company look like? where you're publishing. It's, mm. well, let's just talk Marvel and DC for a second, right? What does the roster of talent at the, you know, Marvel and DC look like in this moment when you're just starting to like kind of come up, right? What are what is the inter- if you're writing at Marvel, what kind of interest does DC have in you? Cuz then you're able to play the companies off of each other and there's a politics game, right? Hmm. The more that you're a good soldier and the more books that you actually create, the more they know what you are and unfortunately what you aren't in their minds, what you aren't. Oh, wild. So I know, I know it. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was going to say something, but (laughs) I don't want to, that it's something that the only one person could have told me. So I don't want to throw them under the bus, but I know like 
Um, you know, there are certain, I'll put it this way. There are editors and, and, and editors in chief and publishers, etc., who build a narrative about creators. Mm-hmm. And no matter what that creator does, if it doesn't fit in their predetermined narrative about the creator, they just don't pay attention to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no one at Marvel and DC gives a shit that I reinvented Power Rangers, that it was a very successful book, that I ran a huge company-wide, cross, I shouldn't say company-wide, a huge line-wide crossover with, you know, tie-in, like, side stories from other writers that I was involved in, uh, a second book that my best friend Ryan was writing, like, no one in Marvel and DC cares because it wasn't a Marvel or DC project. The scope was arguably bigger than a lot of Marvel and DC event, summer events, right? Mm-hmm. I even directed a film for it. They don't care because that doesn't fit their predetermined narrative of who I am as a writer hmm. at that company, hmm. right? Right. Um, someone said at one of the companies like, you know, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I, I got, well, that was kind of what I was starting to say before. It was like I caught wind at one point of like what someone said about the type of writer I was mm-hmm. and what I wouldn't be. Yeah. And it was like, well, the fact that I just did this huge event actually is a complete contradiction to what they think of yeah. me. But it doesn't matter once they once they have a, a, a specific solid, narrative. Right? Yeah. I Having mean, said that, when I was starting, I was 25, 26. They gave me, I, I'd never written a mini series, much less an ongoing series. Suddenly I'm writing a mini series at Marvel, a mini series at DC, two mm-hmm. ongoing series at DC, having never done any of that because it's that boomer bust potential. And execs are the same as editors in the way where everyone wants to be the one to find the next Adam Wingard or the next, you know, Colin Trevorrow or the next whoever. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so there's, there's a component of luck as a filmmaker to like put yourself in that position. But like, I, I, I heard Phil talking about that, like that, like, well, why did this person pop and why haven't I, et cetera. Exactly. Exactly. There's a component of luck, but there is a component of like, we were talking about from the, the rep uh, representative standpoint, the manager standpoint before there's a component of in this day and age, especially, um, I think you have to be very aware of the narrative that you are telling the world about yourself like the projects you do the collaborators you work with the reps that you let speak on your behalf that's smart it makes a lot of sense man and that it i mean for the people listening to the show that just doesn't apply to comics and writing and and movie stuff that applies to almost any other career i saw that a lot in advertising i saw that a lot um when i was a uh, just a young video producer if you decide that you're going to go work for a company for a specific amount of money, if you decide that you're going to go do something for that company, that is the that is the beginning of that narrative that's being written yes. about you. And so it's incredibly difficult. And we've talked about this in other shows where it's about how much money you charge for your work you do. If you set a track record with a specific uh, company, it's impossible to change that track record unless the tops of the company change and the heads of that company change. Yep. So just be cautious. And the thing that sucks about all of this shit is that it is a waiting game and it is this process of trying to find patience. And if we weren't relying upon our work to pay for fucking rent, (laughs) it might be a bit easier to do. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you have to just sort of keep, you got to keep that anxiety and that rage in you 
and then wait. And waiting sucks. Yeah, I mean, shit takes as long as it takes. Like, yeah. and and you're always going to compare yourself to other people and other creators and other filmmakers. You're always going to um, want. You're going to want the opportunities sooner than they come. That's just always going to be the case. And I think, I don't know, as you get older, at least, um, at least for me, I've mm-hmm. become more, uh, I've become more okay with um, how long things take, I guess. Partly because, you know, I'm in bed by like, you know, <laughs> eight o'clock each night because I'm old. And so the days go by you're real old. fast, yeah, you know. Old. No, I mean, you just kind of, you just kind of accept that, um, I mean, look, like I, I don't know where my career would be had I landed, you know, a huge movie at 23. 23, yeah. I have a, I would like to think that I would have been able to get through it, but getting through it, getting through an experience like that versus capitalizing on it and actually creating something that doesn't send you to director's jail for 10 years Jesus are Christ, two yeah. very different things. Yeah. So I think about that a lot. And I think about how yeah. I probably would have fucked it up. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. How, like, yeah. So, so I'm grateful that I have never felt more prepared and ready from a, from a creative standpoint, from a um, sense of self standpoint, from a just kind of, um, uh, a, a calmness standpoint to go shoot a feature than I do now. So then what would you tell the 23-year-old you if you could right now? Uh, to respect the process. Things take the amount of time that they take, and as long as you are active and you're working towards the career that you want and, and creating the type of work that you want, you don't have to be creating the type of work that you want to create right now. You just... Because the reality is, like, you're not. I couldn't have written... I could not have written the Shadow Hours feature at 23. Couldn't have written it at 26 or 27. I wrote it at... I, I couldn't even write it at 30. I, I was trying to write it at 30. Mm-hmm. I made the short film. Making the short film helped me realize how to write what the feature should be yep um and actually the relationship i was in like we would talk about it all the time and and i figured out what the movie should be while we were together and then i couldn't write it at 31 because it was too emotionally connected to that person and that experience i wrote it at 32 that's how long it took I had the idea at 26. I wrote it at 32. But in the meantime, in between there, I wrote a ton of other shit. A ton of other shit that prepared me to go write that thing. And I didn't even realize what was happening. And I'll give you a good example. Not only creatively writing a ton of other stuff that would prepare me, right, to be able to creatively tackle this. Because it's very, it's very um, memento-esque in that it's, it's, it's like, 
you're playing with the perspective of when each brother learns information versus right. when the audience learns the information, right. right? It's very, and you jump back in time sometimes and you see things from a different perspective. It's very kind of clockwork-esque while still having like a really strong, you know, emotional core about the relationship between these two brothers. So a lot of the work that I had done in comics creatively prepared me for how to tackle this, okay? Mm -hmm. But the other more important thing was I had a bunch of books come out that were reviewed horribly. You know, I have books out there that I am not proud of that I don't think are very good whatsoever. And part of that is me still learning how to write. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is editorial notes. Uh, the other part of it is me not knowing how to navigate the politics and the editorial processes mm -hmm. as efficiently and respectfully as, you know, uh, you have to, to be able to go, you know, do this shit at a high level. I mean, I was fine. I mean, it, you know, the books got out and, and they're competent, but I'm not happy with them. But something happened when those books would come out. Uh, the sun still came up. <laughs> and you realize that that fear of creating something that's really bad and that will forever destroy your name and your career, etc. It's not as, I don't want to say it's not as likely because that could absolutely happen. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it's not as, it, it shouldn't be as prominent a fear and thought right. as, as it often is. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Uh, Kyle's a really fucking cool dude. Um, and you know what? It's I'm happy to have... This is the first episode that we've done on comics officially. And comics is such an important part of my life. So I'm so happy to be able to do that uh, and have such a great guest to start it with. And I just want to say thank you to all of you listeners out there. Thank you to the men and women that support this show by listening to it. And please tell your friends, uh, gather people around. If you're, if you're driving an Uber and there's a lot of Lyft and Uber drivers out there, fuck your, fuck your passenger, play the podcast. And when they ask what the podcast is, tell them, say, Hey, listen to what love of the process. This guy that barely makes it through his reads and swears a lot. He's kind of cool to listen to this 60 episodes. This is 60. This one's number 60 fucking crazy, right? Uh, plenty of more really great episodes on the way. I'm super excited with the guests that we're lining up and I'm really going to try to expand in the new year. So your support helps that. Uh, yeah. I hope you guys have a good holiday season. I know I was really excited in the read and the opening for this and I still am. I think that uh, it's going to be a good new year. I think 2020 is going to be the year with some bigger announcements. So, in the meantime, in the wait until January comes around, have a good time. Have a great holiday. Have some good food. Hang out with some good people. And like I said, if you're, you know, on your own, feel free to reach out to me. Write to me on Instagram, and I'll wish you a happy holidays in person. And uh, that's it, guys. And uh, what was my suggestion? Oh, I had a suggestion last week from one of the guests, and they said, maybe you should end the show by saying, See you next Tuesday. <laughs> See you next Tuesday.
Thank you.